Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotic. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Marklin and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit TheReptileReport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad. It also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buy and selling? Use shipyourreptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotic. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Marklin and I created the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit TheReptileReport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is... It's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination, full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, 
weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad that also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buying or selling? Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animal successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a (laughs) saved episode of Morelia Python Radio. I kicked it and kicked it again, and we're good to go. All we had to do was run the commercial twice, and then it worked. No intro music. You get none today. Well, just so, yeah, so what happens is there's a studio and in the uh-huh. studio is this interface, which Owen knows, that comes up on a uh, computer, and mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't come up. So <laughs> I, I couldn't play the, any clips, and I couldn't click us on. Uh, <laughs> and when I contact Blog Talk, they more or less uh, tell me everybody's busy. So. That's <laughs> To pay for that feature. Oh, God. Anyhow, <laughs> I'm glad that they'll, we were They'll able be to... hearing from us later about this. Yeah. <laughs> I swear, man, once we move, I'm going to have NPR Studios and all this. We're going to go full out. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get the uh, whole kit and caboodle. I'll still sound the same because I won't be there, but, yeah. No, well, no, we'll, we'll be able to fix that somehow. But, anyway. Somehow. So here we are, episode 229 of NPR, and tonight uh, we are having uh, Keith McPeak join us back, turning uh, to go deeper uh, into Boland's pythons um, in his approach to keeping them and what he's observed so far with trying to breed mm-hmm. them. Um, for those who uh, don't know, Keith joined us way back in last, well, uh, maybe a couple months ago uh, for our first ever <laughs> Boland's Roundtable. Uh, not right. only was that the first Bowen's round table, that was the biggest round table that we ever had. It was ridiculous. And, uh, it took us like 20 minutes to get through everybody and then get back yeah, there, to the question. So. Yeah, there was there was questions that we didn't even uh, we didn't even hit on. at all. Yeah, but uh, Keith has always fascinated me because um, you know, for one, he was uh, big time into blood pythons and short tails for for quite a while, um, and. He also worked with, um, you know, uh, looking back on his Facebook feeds and some of the uh, things that he uh, put up. Um, he's worked with uh, jungles and all kinds of different pythons and boas. So uh, I'm really uh, excited to talk to him about, uh, you know, uh, some of the ways that he's trying to approach uh, working with this pinnacle of pythons, if you will. But Owen, what's going on mm. with you? What's going on over here is uh, it is like someone flipped a switch and now everybody's breeding. Um, 
the the caramel is locked up with a caramel jag. The the the, the red jag is locked up with a red tiger. Um, everything's breeding except for like the weird stuff like the liasses, the stuff I really want. Um, uh, even the freaking Amazon tree boas, I caught them locked, and I'm like, God damn it, no, I want you to leave. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> I guess it's just waiting for the season to cool down as well as, you know, right now it's snowing sideways up here. So uh, that's also something <laughs> that's helpful. Um, so, yeah, it's just like one more thing. Uh, and uh, it's funny that we're doing a bowling show today because uh-huh. I was actually, I was getting a tattoo on Saturday. And, uh-huh. uh, my, and it's a, it, you know, I had them do the rough scale and he drew it all up. And my artist, uh, uh, was working on me and he's like dude i was researching this snake and i found this type online uh a bull a bowling bullet like a bowling so he goes yeah dude you gotta let me tattoo that on you or something like that <laughs> that's just a killer looking animal he's like that thing is sick looking we gotta try that i'm like i don't have any of those he goes you mean that's the rule you you have to own it before i can tattoo it on you I'm like something like that so he goes well you should get some i'm like god damn it it's everywhere like, you know, can I escape the people that want me to rush out and buy Bowling's Pythons? Apparently not. No, so, you cannot. Yeah. So that was funny. I got to chuckle at that one. So uh, I, I it's predict, cool that we're doing. I predict that you will have them before I do. Lies. Lies. <laughs> Lies. Slander. You and I both know that it's just going to be one of those things where I'm going to, like, you, you're going to do it so nonchalant. You're going to be like, it's going to be like a Wednesday around noon, and you're like, oh, by the way, I just unboxed my Bowling's Python. And then I'm going to be like, that's nice. Wait, what? So it's like, that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> for me, uh, it's going to be one of those, you're going to have them for like a couple months. And then I'll actually get down to your neck of the woods and like see you, and uh-huh. I'll, you'll let me play with them. And then I will be back here at my place obsessing over them for at least a month and a half. And then I will have to get my own, but I'm going to make sure, like, I would message you every step of the way. Like, for three days straight, be, I'm thinking about Bolins, thinking about Bolins, really thinking about Bolins. Hey, I talked to this guy about Bolins. Hey, I put money down on Bolins. <laughs> hey, I bought the Bolins. Hey, they're coming. Hey, they're here. I'm opening the box now. Like, it would be every five seconds. So, yeah. that's, just, that's just how it is, the difference is between you and I. Um, but I think you're going to pull the trigger first. I think you're going to get there before me. No, you know, I was thinking about it after the round table and uh, I'm still on the, you know, I'm still sitting on the fence. Right after the round table, I was pretty pretty sure that I was going to get them and then I was kind of like, uh, I don't know if I'm ready yet. Problem, I don't know if I'm ready yet. Well, the problem I have is that there's so many things on my list that I would like to fill in beforehand that the money that it would cost for Bowens, I would use for other projects. So it's like do I really want a pair of Bolins when I really, really, really want my Blackface Whitelist back? Or Timors have gotten wriggled themselves into my brain somehow. Um, you know, there, there's so many other animals and so many different things. Like, I need to get new cages for the olive pythons. There's there's a lot of different stuff that I would like to do. Bolins would probably happen for me, but it has to happen at, it has to be at a point where I've filled most of my list or I don't have that many things that are pressing or that I really want like inlands have to happen uh, I would like to do some different stuff with the bread life so it's like it's one of those things where they're on my list but they keep getting jumped like they keep getting knocked down by other animals they keep moving up so right. 
it's yeah. one of those things, you know. But but if the opportunity well, were to arise, like say somebody were to just like if somebody were to offer me a pair of babies at a ridiculous price that I, no sane human being on the planet could pass up, of course I would do that. And then you know it gets heaved out the window. So yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, we've talked about this on the last show with the weather. And for me in the season, and I really kind of my room alone during the, the chill down. Um, so I'm in there today and really trying to figure out what's going on because I knew that there was a storm coming through tonight and just yeah. seeing what's what. Well, turns out, <laughs> turns out that there must have been breeding going on all this time, and I just have missed it, you know, because I'm the type of guy that just puts the snakes together and. You know, I just kind of let them do their thing, and mm. really, I'm catching them. Uh, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the room in the very early morning, like 4:30 in the morning, and I'm in the room when, when you... I come home from like <laughs> seven to eight before before uh, you know it shuts down. You're, you're in the room at four in the morning. The snakes aren't even awake at four in the morning. You're psychotic. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, my animals will be like, "What the hell are you doing here?" So it's. It, it, and it and I'm, I guess I'm kind of in the same boat with you. There are a few that I'm like, all right, you guys are already pregnant, cool. So, yeah, I don't want to count the eggs before they're hatched, but you know, <laughs> I know that I always freak out um, and say, you know, I'm not going to get. And we do this every year where we're not going to get anything. Year, we're going to go ahead. Year. It's like so I never, reach in, never gonna get any eggs. Yeah, I reach in the the, the cages, and uh, what I'm feeling is that feeling. I the. I, you have a better description of it, and hopefully I can uh, get it right. But when you feel the female down at the at the lower end of her body, she has yeah. like this, uh, like the her sides kind of go over her belly scale. Yeah. Like usually yeah, it, the, it, it, the the belly scales I, pop out, almost look like a square. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, the albino and the citrus tiger, uh, that's she's she's like that. Um, my ocelot jag and albino, she's like that. Uh, my mpeg coastals, she was basking belly up, so I'm pretty sure that she's avid. Uh, Dude, that stick a fork in that one. Um, wait, is that mpen to mpen? Yes. Yeah. You, you, you dirty bastard. No, no more. No, nothing. (laughs) Um, God, God. Damn it! I'll give you it's, so much money. God damn it! Oh. <laughs> it's it's crazy because the the crazy morph projects. I guess yeah. they're just not old enough. I don't know. I mean, I saw again. This will be the third year. I think I have a broken exanic female. I think she's just broken. <laughs> this is the third year in a row that I'm trying to hey, breed her. You you and that female have never gotten along because you're yeah. like yeah, double head snows, and you got locks. Like you sent me pictures of locks. And then nothing yeah. happens, and it's no. like, you're, like you and this, you and this exanic girl. Like I, I think if you could, like if someone were to walk up and be like, "I will give you this exanic girl for that one," you'd be like, "Take it, take it now, get this yeah. the hell out of here." So and she's it, so pretty too, you know. She is, so. and, and, and it's a kick in the freaking pants. So well, I guess maybe next year what I'll try to do is I'll breed my albino zebra jag to my zebra exanic. And just do it that way. <laughs> you, you you can't tell, but I just had a small seizure because it's just like, oh, it's not that bad to make well, this. Oh yeah. Uh, Darwin 
uh, but for me, I'm I'm pretty much in the same freaking boat because I mean, you know, we have I have the pairs that I've been seeing regular locks from, and that the females already presenting is gravid. I'm not including the bread lies in this because they're still off in their side room. They haven't even done shit yet. But right. then I have the other ones that are just fighting me tooth and nail. I can't get the supercar to lock up with anything. The Xanax is afraid of her. Um, the caramel male that I have going in with my Lemke female doesn't want anything to do with her. Um, the And then the two Tiger projects, I don't have the male uh, free yet, so I haven't really uh, – they haven't even seen the male yet. Um, and then my Jag, my Hikon Jag I have in with my granite male, and they don't know what to do with each other. They're just staring at each other. So I like, and, and then I put the jag in with other males, and she still doesn't know what to do with them. But I'm like, God damn it! I check the sex on everybody. Everybody's who they're supposed to be. Um, so it's just kind of like a, everything's up in the air. Um, the bread lie will probably be moving back in in uh, in the room in uh, mid February, so I can yeah. start trying to breed them. But you know. Right now, it's like I'm looking at three, four clutches and possibly a damn litter of boas. But, you know, it's it's better than last year, and I'm extremely excited about that. But <laughs> there's a few females that haven't done anything, you know. Uh, we haven't had any luck out of the olive pythons. They've been, like, just they're, – they're hungry as shit. They will not stop begging for food at the front of their cage. Um, the max I had to separate – because I'm pretty sure the smaller male was beating up on the female because they found fresh bite wounds on her. And I'm like, God damn it. So the hell's going on with those two? I don't know. So it's, everything's kind of up in the air. But this is breeding season. Nothing is certain until we get later on into it. And then you can start kind of coming to the conclusions. Like where you're at, where you have those multiple females that are showing you signs of being gravid and signs of being all right, um, you know, you can now start making the assumptions that that male has done his job. Uh, I can only do that for like three, four animals right now. So yeah, I, I might end up having a later season than you. Yeah, the one thing that is kind of a bummer is um, I did get uh, my poison ivy girl, <clears throat> which is my melanistic IJ, which is a you yeah. know she's like a, a a prize in my collection. Um, I go and I feel her now. She bred with the tiger IJ, which is awesome. And she appears to either be growing or be or be you know gravid. Problem is, is that she has an RI or the start of an RI. Uh, I yeah. took her out. I noticed some bubbles and blah blah blah. You know, I was talking to you guys earlier right. about uh, you know what to do. So I don't want to lose her. So she's going to go to the vet. Uh, and yeah. you know, uh, you know, if I get eggs out of her, great. If not, then you know it is what it is. Um, you know. But, um, yeah, my fingers are crossed for that. I mean, it would be awesome. If yeah. She did get – I mean, she laid eggs before, and seems like in the breeding season she always kind of has this issue. I mean, I don't know. She's just – I don't know. Uh, stress just she, gets was, her, man. You know? Was she the one that laid the eggs, and then you noticed like a day or two after that she kind of was cooking something – yeah, she was maternally incub- maternally incubating, yeah. and then she rolled yeah. off the egg. And then, uh, you know, I looked in, and I was like, wow, that's odd. And yeah. I thought for a minute, you know, she was just, uh, you know, uh, maybe going to – sometimes they do. Sometimes they roll off the eggs. Um, but uh, yeah. I don't know, just always kind of take a second look when it happens. And I, I checked her out, and sure enough, she had a little bit of a wheeze. And, uh, you know, uh, so um, – 
I don't know. It's a funny year for IJs. I think here it's you know IJs always go early, and with the way that things are, I, I don't know if uh, I'll get any IJs this year. But you know, I'm really excited for next year because there's probably like maybe possibly ten pairings of IJs that I have going on. So. So that's kind of everything that's going on with us. Um, we got uh, Keith on the line here, so uh, let's get this let this get this going. But um, show on the road we'll, <laughs> for everybody out there that's listening. Um, we will be touching on um, some blood and short tail talk at, towards the end of our conversation, simply because Keith is well known for uh, his work with bloods and short tails. We would be uh, probably lynched if we didn't at least hit on it from uh, our... Uh, Matt you know, wouldn't speak to us, yeah. <laughs> short tail yeah. fans and whatnot, but... Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, towards the end of the show, we're going to we're gonna touch uh, on just some general reptile talk. And like I said, uh, Keith has a lot of experience uh, when it comes to reptiles and such, but uh, let's get this going, and uh, let's get Keith on the show. Hey, Keith, welcome back to Morality Python Radio. Glad to have you. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me back. I uh, really appreciate it. Sure thing. And uh, we're doing good, except for the small technical difficulties, which always seems to happen in a show that Eric's excited about. So I, it happens. So we're working. Um, now, Keith, for some of the people who didn't listen to the Bolin's show, which I don't know who those people are, but they should, you know, we should stop talking to them immediately. Um <laughs> Can you give us a brief kind of overview of yourself um, and what is it about Bolins specifically that you find fascinating? Well, first I got to give a shout out to the Bolin boys that uh, I've been uh, hanging with lately, and uh, Frederick would be first on the list, and Ari after him, Chad, and of course uh, Casper and Evan. Uh, great group nice. of guys. Really nice to uh, share information with them. They are all very um, open about their experiences and uh, definitely a good community uh, I fell into here. Real happy uh, being a part of that group. Um, <clears throat> my history is basically, like most of uh, everybody that's really deep into this hobby, started out you know, when I could walk, basically catching anything I could catch and um, keeping reptiles and animals of all sorts in general. Um, I was lucky enough to have an exotic uncle vet that uh, was into big cats, and he had uh, lions and jaguars, and also, you know, it was just kind of destiny for me to fall into the exotic animals in captivity type of thing, and I um, always was fascinated with reptiles, kept reptiles for a lot of years, got really heavy into the bloods, uh, started with them probably in the late 80s, and just uh, worked with them for many, 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 many years. Um the short tails more so than the bloods, but <clears throat> have experience with both of them for a lot of years and then uh, kind of grew out of that and moved on to uh, new challenges and old things that just caught my fancy and Bowens were definitely always on the list, you know, and uh, you, what's not to love about them? I mean, the looks, the rarity, the um, challenges, it's just absolutely everything somebody like myself would want to work with, so Naturally, I went to those, and uh, here we are today. Awesome. So um, h about how many Bolins do you have in your collection? 
currently? Uh, I have three pairs that I'm working with. I have one pair that's definitely sexually mature and, and uh, a lot of activity there. I have another pair that's questionable and uh, on size and age, but, you know, working with them and seeing what will happen with them and then another pair that's uh, definitely a few years away. So I got those uh, on my main focus. I have other animals in my collection, different species, mm-hmm. like one room set up just for these guys, and those guys are my definitely my focus right now. That's awesome. So now I know you've given a lot of thought and kind of have a bunch of theories on Bolins. Um, and one of the ones that we've been asked a few times is, do you have any thoughts on why we see Bolins with yellow markings and some with white markings? Well, Ari believes that it's a locale thing, possibly. Um, but the animals with the white markings, he believes, are in an area that is inaccessible to him and other people to go investigate that. But some of the early animals that came into captivity um, were animals with white markings, and it's believed that those animals get larger. Now, when you're looking at photographs of animals in people's collections, if you don't have a very strong UV, UVB bulb on them, um, the yellow can appear white in photographs, but I've photographed my animals where it looks like it's a stark white on them, but you get them underneath a UV bulb, and it's unbelievable how the yellow pops on the animal. It's crazy. Um, Just a matter of just putting them under that light. Okay, so could a few of the animals that we like have in photographs that we presume are white, could they have just been yellow ones? Absolutely. Like a chicken camera? Yeah, absolutely. In my opinion, absolutely. Because I've done it here. I've just, I've photographed them both ways. Sometimes, like I say, the yellow looks like highlighter yellow and other times it looks like a white. It's just depending on where they are in their caging and access to that UV light. Um, I'm sure there's different degrees, you know, through variation, but these things are so rare and you don't get to see too many of them that right. they really put a big, you know, thumbprint on what's going on with them with the color. I, I, I tend to agree with Ari because he's the man that's going over there and checking everything out. So I, right. I would have to concur with him in thinking that it's probably a locale type thing for that one. And I, I think that's future research that Ari would definitely like to get into and, and see if he could prove out. That's cool. So, but that that does make a lot of sense. So, um, very cool. So, you said in the uh, you mentioned in the roundtable discussion that uh, about this huge female from I think you said is uh, the owner was Paul Miles. Am I, yeah, am I? Paul Miles. Okay, yeah, from the Bowl Barn down in Maryland. You know, remember the Mid Atlantic show in its heyday was you know everybody went to Daytona and you partied like crazy in Daytona and had a great time. And then everybody looked forward to winding down and going to the mid Atlantic show. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to hear that Paul bred the bones to, to go to his place and, um, check out his animals. And I can just remember, you know, only ever seeing smaller animals and the animals I had worked with, which was only one pair way yeah. before that were a lot smaller than this and they came in bad shape and mine didn't last very long but when I went to Paul Miles and I walked in expecting to see um, you know basically like you know an average size python I expected him to be a little bigger than, than carpet python like a big carpet mm-hmm. python I walked in and I looked at his female and the first words that came 
to mind was that thing looks like a Burmese python, the size, you know, the length that it is, that's where a berm would be at that weight and length. And it just amazed me that it was that big. His male was substantially smaller. I have a picture holding his male that I, I think may be on my, my page. But the male was substantially smaller, but the female was, you know, definitely something I looked at and like, wow, that is a big animal. I had no idea they got that big. Wow. So, so I mean, that kinda... animal, yeah, the history of that animal was Tracy Barker had had gotten in, and I reached out to Tracy after our mm-hmm. round table. She had gotten in a gravid female, and she was one of the first to successfully hatch um, eggs from a wild-caught female. And Paul Miles had picked up a pair from her, and that those were the animals that Paul had raised and then subsequently bred. Um and and Tracy wasn't sure of the locale. She's still looking into that to see if she could find out where it was. But she said that her female was about uh, 17 feet, uh, I'm sorry, 7 feet long. It gave her 17 <laughs> eggs. That'd be awesome, right? And, well, um, 17 feet, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, she got 17 eggs from it, from what she could recollect. Um, and uh, the babies didn't present a big problem to her, which was interesting. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, her female wasn't exceptionally large, so it led me to believe that a lot of husbandry that Paul put into those animals is what grew his animal, uh, female so so going large, you know? Yeah, and, and isn't that kind of going against the thinking that we're kind of having right now with all of Frederick's success is that the Bolins need to be kind of slender and, you know, uh, smaller to have success. Yeah, his aren't, yeah, his aren't I, massive. No, his aren't massive either, and I, I and that's what I wrestle with with what my animals are telling me. But what Frederick, who's you know to me the most successful person out there right now with him, mm-hmm. so I, you know I'm comparing notes with what I'm thinking and where I want to go with my animals. But I'm going back to what he's doing, and I definitely see conflicts there. But there's just so many things at play when you start thinking about feeding regimes with a snake and temperatures. You know it's it's how the size of the prey you're feeding, how frequently you're feeding, but also the temperatures you're keeping your animals at, mm-hmm. which enables them to use those meals in different directions. So you could literally, if you do everything else a certain way, you could really feed your animals frequently, yet keep that lean, long look, but have meals processing through their body constantly to do things like, uh, you know, for fo- uh, building uh, follicles and whatnot. So, I wrestle with that one. That one's tough for me. I, I think feeding is definitely one of the big keys to, to breeding these guys along with temperatures. But I think a feeding regime and understanding your animals and what they need when they need it is a is a huge thing. But I am a believer if you got to feed them to breed them. It's proven out to me with a lot of different animals. But it's a, it's a tough one with the bullens, you know, because you, you definitely right. don't want to put too much weight on them. Um, but you also want to get that right balance there with the females especially. Right, I could see that as being like a little razor's edge, you know, thin enough to do all they got to do, but also big enough to breed safely. It's kind of like one of those, you know, catch-22 things. Um, now, Keith, you but mentioned... It just, it, it, just, it just makes sense for an animal. Well, see, I wrestle with uh, the metabolism yep. of these guys, too, because everybody says their metabolism is so fast, so fast, so fast. But is their metabolism so fast because we as keepers have been keeping them too warm? 
Um, blood pythons, you know, when you keep too warm, the, the blood pythons stool and, and their mess is, is a lot different than when you're keeping them at proper temperatures. And if Bull and I are, are in general kept at cooler temperatures or Mother Nature has them at cooler temperatures, there's a metabolism just speeded up in captivity because the, the way I'm keeping them now, I'm not finding them to be as messy as they were when I first started working with them. And, and the stool is more consistent with pythons in captivity and the frequency and everything. Um, yeah, they still have a faster metabolism than other animals, but usually animals with a fast metabolism require a lot of food. It's not an animal with a fast metabolism not requiring a lot of food. So it's a tough one. I think food is definitely one of the big keys, and obviously Frederick has it dialed in to to his group of animals and and when to feed and how to feed and how often to feed and size of prey. You know, I think that's definitely a uh, huge thing for breeding these guys. Yeah, I I would definitely agree to that. Um, That is interesting that you said, like, the metabolism because – I mean, we keep hearing about certain python species that poop in their cages every two days and have the metabolism of, like, corn snakes. Um, right. Yeah, it's almost like a, I wonder if we're keeping some species a little too, bit too warm, and if cooling it down a little bit will help out with that. That's yeah, because, like you know, the, my, my, the stools of my animals have definitely gotten firmer and more consistent of a typical python um, mm. than, than when I was keeping them a lot warmer than I am now. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I would think that that's a healthier way to go. I mean, you know, when you keep them too warm, they literally will be smearing it around their cage, you know? Oh, and, and it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot more frequent, but I think the way I'm keeping them now is much healthier for the animals. And, and I'm seeing the results of that with different things like just defecating, you know? Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, that might be something, you know, that somebody might want to try with something, say, like a Timor python with, you know, yeah. I, I've heard horrible things about them, so maybe cooling them down a little bit. I might try with my Dominican boas. <laughs> right. So, um, all right. Now, uh, Keith, you kind of also mentioned about, during the roundtable, about observing your animals and how Ari kind of showed you a video of him hiking up one of the mountains, and that kind of changed the way you thought about you know, observing your animals and what you kept your animals. Um, what are some of the things that you kind of took away from that video and what did you make, what changes did you make to your collection? Um, well, it, it, I guess Ari had posted a video um, that was a teaser for the book coming out. Mm-hmm. And and it shows him kind of at his base camp and then he's on a trail and it's a long trek that he's just walking on. And, you know, where he was, Walking through, if you're ever a deer hunter, and I want to say like Saskatchewan or or in in maybe out um, in the state of Washington or something like that, just the terrain, the scenery, the way the grasses were, everything about it just kind of sent a, a mental picture to me more clearly of what these snakes are probably doing in that area where he was hiking through. It just it gave me more of a sense of. I don't know what the terminology is I want to use, but it's mm-hmm. it's more of an animal in a cooler environment that's relying on that sun so much for its existence, you know, and, and not so much the ambient temperatures. So everything that that animal does is controlled by the sun because 
this, where he was at that particular moment, and I'm not saying all Bowens come from areas like this, but it just sent a picture to me because there wasn't like super heavy, heavy vegetation. It was more open where, you know, a snake could really do a lot of basking and whatnot, more than a dense, thick forest jungle where, you know, it doesn't have access to too much sun, sunshine. You know what I mean? So that, that snake mm-hmm. is definitely, in my opinion, totally geared to the sun. Everything about it is about the sun. Um, and, and this video just really, I mean, I always, you always think about things in your head and what if, what if, what if, but when you actually see it in the video when he's walking and see the terrain, it just, it just confirmed a lot of things that I want to try with the snakes, you know? Yeah. That is cool. Very cool. Um, so, uh, what are some of your thoughts when it comes to genetic diversity? Um, do you think it's important to establish bloodlines um the the more readily they are producing captivity like are you thinking that we should probably try to get as many bloodlines established as possible possible with this captive born and bred population that we're getting now well i'm definitely definitely very concerned about that for a lot of reasons i I used to breed a lot of very exotic pheasants and some of the pheasants that i used to breed were you know violets firebacks and and different birds that were definitely very hard to come by. And what happened was when when you're breeding them over generations, all kinds of deformities started coming out with crooked toes and, and infertility and all these kind of things. And, and when we started all digging into the reasons why we were having these problems because so many birds were collected from the wild, you find out that where these birds come from is such rugged terrain and such inaccessible areas that collectors collect from very specific areas. And the diversity that you think you're getting animals from the wild, but in fact, you're getting them from a very small area because it's what's accessible to the collectors in the wild. So even though you think, hey, they're bringing these things in from the wild, it may be a very small area that they're actually making their collections. I mean, they're not bringing thousands into our country. You know what I mean? There's small numbers that come into our country all the time. So I would tend to think that the areas that they collect them in are very small. So I, I worry about what kind of genetics we have available to us even right now, just coming mm. into the wild. Um, and I think it's very important to to document at least even these person you're getting from the importer and whatnot and try to get as much background on them as you can. Um Thankfully, right now, we're not all breeding the heck out of them, and and we have a chance to to do this the right way, and I think Mm -hmm. it really needs to be done the right way. That's why Ari's research is so important, and, you know, definitely getting him the funds he needs to go over there and do it as many times as he can will help us all. Um, And this just happens to be my species of choice right now. I'm sure there's a lot of other work going on and different things, but... Um, it would be really nice to, to definitely get a more of an understanding for that and help and protect our, our future with these guys, you know, because I think more people will start breeding them um, as we just, I mean, you know, with Frederick as guidance and and all of us just starting to think in different ways than other people have in the past. I'm hoping that more people do start breeding them so we really need, we're around the cutting edge of needing to really start thinking about the genetic diversity for sure. Yeah, and especially as Frederick's babies get older, now you have captive born and bred babies entering the breeding stock and that might make it a little bit easier to start producing babies as well. So it's right. nice to try to get some wild caught animals mixed into 
Frederick's captive born and bred to kind of just diversify the gene pool a lot. So Absolutely. That would be nice. I'd like that. But, but even cool. with that, you know, Owen, even with that, we wonder, is there really a difference between the animals I have and the, and the animals that Frederick has? I don't know if they were really collected in that great of a range. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, so I, yeah. I worry about it already, you know. Only because of history I've had with other animals, like like I say, especially with the birds, it was definitely a big problem that we had. And uh, with an animal is rare and hard to collect, and how many of them are only allowed to leave the country and whatnot, it's definitely a very big concern for the species. Right. I mean, the uh, the good thing is is that there is definitely you know uh, a wild caught population that you can be tapped into, which would allow right. for the bio- biodiversity. I mean, like it's not like carpet pythons here in the United States where I think only IJs can come in as wild caught. I mean, we do get new blood from Europe, but it's still not that different. And the funniest thing in the world is when somebody tells me that they're going to get a pair of uh, unrelated rough scale pythons. And it's like, they only came from two animals collected in Australia. Everything's related to each other. So it's, you know, it's kind of like that. So at least then when, you guys get rolling with the breeding. If you want to add some wild-caught bloodlines, you could definitely do that, which would be awesome. So. You can, as long as the animals are collected in a different area. Exactly. You know what I mean? You know. Yeah. So, so it's very, it's very, it's very essential for Ari and whoever else can go over and do this to document where these animals are being collected. I think. Right. For sure. Right. Yeah, I wonder why there hasn't been a focus. Uh, well, okay, so let me rephrase that. I think that they my thinking would be that they would be coming from the same location, and I'll tell you why, because every other um, python that comes from New Guinea uh, is basically locality-type animals. I mean, think of chondros, yeah. think of scrubs, you know, IJs really aren't focused on locality simply because they pretty much come from the same area. So I think it would be that wouldn't Bowen's really be coming from the same area simply be, or at least that's where they're, you know, collected for the, uh, you know, the captive, uh, you know, captivity. But, uh, cause you would think that if, if they came from different, that would just be a, a crazy selling point. I mean, right. and they could make that up. I probably shouldn't say that right. on air because next thing you right. know, they'll they've be saying that. somebody's <laughs> listening in Indonesia and is now going to we're going to start seeing yeah. locality specific bowlings. Yeah. But you know, you know what I mean. Like you would think that that would be, you know, uh, just from uh, different reasons as far as you know. Okay, well, this locality may be tough to breed, but maybe this locality might be easier, and you know, maybe if you mix this locality with that locality and. You know, it's just weird that that all. The I would other... think that that could become a big selling point. I think as more people start to breed the animal, um, uh-huh. it'll generate more interest and make the collectors do that. But right now, if you think about it, I mean, you know, these guys, even already going in there to look at these guys, they're in like some pretty rugged terrain where you know accidents could happen very easily. So, if you can sure. get to your animals. If you can get to your animals in in one day of um, trekking through through the the mountains there, why would you go three days to to get that animal when you can go one day? So most right. of the collectors are probably going to the edges of their 
range to, to make their collection in probably one of the easier areas it is to collect them. Um, yeah, sure. Because they're not going to work harder. And, and you know, like I say, only so many are coming out of the country. Only so many people will buy them. I mean, you know, it's definitely a species for somebody that really wants something different, very unusual, and will put the effort into the animal. So it's not a huge commodity right now. So they're only going to go to where they need to go to, to get the animals that, you know, are wanted in the country right now or, or overseas. Right. Now, with this is kind of an off-topic question, but I'm just curious on your thoughts. Say, do you think there'll come a point, maybe 10 years, 15 years from now, where you'll see Bolin's pythons in the same vein as some of the uh, harder or used-to-be-harder type of species of pythons to breed? And, and they'll be more readily available in captivity? Nothing will surprise me. When, when um, I'm going to say the early 90s, maybe when Bull and I were still in the ten to $15,000 a piece range, and they literally looked like they could die at any moment, I went into, um, I forget the name of the chain at the time, but let's say it was like a Petco of nowadays back then, and there was a Boland's python in a 10-gallon tank in a reptile store that mainly dealt with fish. To see that back oh. then, you oh, know. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, it, yeah, and the thing was, like, so near death, like, I was going to sell my car to buy the thing to try to give it a shot because they didn't know what they were doing. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it was in terrible shape. Um, so, I mean, I've seen I've seen Boland pythons <laughs> in pet stores, you know, 15 years ago. My hope would be that it's going to remain a species that the more dedicated person is going to want to deal with. You know what I mean? And sure, just because of the nature of the animal, it's just it's something that you can keep in your normal collection. I know you want to you, on your questions. You were going to talk about this later. You could keep it, I believe, in a normal python room, uh, maybe in the lower te- cages of the room, so it's a, a little bit cooler. But I think. They'll, they'll survive at 78 to 80 degree ambient temperatures in the room and be fine. You may never breed the snake, but if you want a pair of bones and you want them in your collection, they'll be a very hardy snake for you to keep. You know, It's when you start trying to get into really what makes that animal tick and wanting to uh, to breed it that you know, you start, start getting them a little bit more on the delicate side and have to really stay on top of your game to, to stay with the animal. You know? So I don't know how many right. people are really going to want to do that. Sure, yeah, and, that, and that's fine with me. You know, it, yeah, I think in a way that's kind of a good thing, you know, because it kind of keeps that. Uh, I think I said on the last show that uh, you know keeps that, uh, for a lack of a better word, jobber out of the whole. You know, I'm gonna get these, breed them, sell them, make tons of money type of right. reptile attitude that some people have. You know, yeah, and so, and, and, and 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 Frederick, you know, he he has talking with him, I really respect the man because of the way he looks at things and approaches problems. And obviously he's a very gifted guy at reading animals or he wouldn't be breeding them so many years in a row. And babies for him are, are a struggle. And, and we heard, you know, get them going a little bit. And we heard right. uh, Evan with, uh, you know, babies that he's purchased and, and having hardships getting the babies going. So I think there's a lot of factors that will keep them from becoming so mainstream. Um, which yeah. is fine. You know, the hobby needs animals that are, are, you know, something that a lot of people keep in the back of their mind. Someday they want to try and give a shot at. So I think it's great that they're 
kind of in that status right now, you know? Right, sure. So, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, about as far as when you're getting in, you know, these captive hatched uh, imported animal, I mean, how difficult would you say they are to establish and, you know, what are your, what are your, some of your experiences that you've had? Uh, um, get- well, every, everything I've worked with has been a black python already. I haven't, um, ever taken on a challenge of, of a red baby. Um, but what Evan was saying stands true for me just with other python species I've worked with. If, if you have these animals that are hard to get going, and I'm sure you guys will agree, mm-hmm. um, pumping them, with meals, once you get them going, you want to keep hitting them and, and get them past that fragile stage. And, and Evan touched on that with the animals that he's worked with, where you keep the temperature a little bit warmer. You, you know, they'll use what they're they're being fed at those times to, to put size on and get them out of that delicate age. And it almost seems like, um, you know, like you're, you're in a rush to get them past that point. That's probably the way to go with these guys from from people I've talked to that have had experience raising them out of the red phase. So I think that's the way, you know, my approach is going to be, um, you know, I talked to Tracy. She said her babies were, you know, no problem to get started. Um, Hers took off right away um, and fed like most other pythons. So you wonder what the cues were that she was doing any different than, you know, a couple of the people that have had a tough time going. I don't know. But, um, Hopefully, I'll have that challenge uh, in the near future and uh, can elaborate on that a little bit more. But that's that's going to be my approach to them. Get them, you know, finally get them going. Once they're going, right. try to get them out of that red phase, you know, a little faster than, than normal. I'm not going to be afraid with the food at that stage. Right. Okay. Um, so let's talk about, uh, I mean, I guess this will be as far as your collection now, which I would assume you said is either sub adult or adults. So like, let's talk about caging. I mean, in the, in the round uh, table pre-interview, uh, caging came up specifically with one of the things that you wanted to hit on is your caging to achieve specific goals. And you had the design that you had been working on. Uh, would you want to share that with us and what your thoughts were? Yeah, I actually, um, when I first started with these guys, I built a, as big a cage as I could, and I, I actually double-tiered it because my thought is I, I don't really know a lot about these guys yet, and, and I always take everything like I, I, t- I read what everybody else has experienced, but I don't use that as my Bible. I tend to rather let the animals tell me because everybody's variations and their conditions and everything are a little bit different, and if you strictly adhere to what you hear from somebody else, you'll never go anywhere with a difficult species. You know, you got to really trust your instinct and your experience and go with with that. So I, I built the cage as big as I could. Um, I built them eight feet long, um, double-tiered, though, so, you know, they have really 16 foot by almost three foot floor space because I wanted to see what they would do. I wanted to see if they would prefer being in the dark. Would they prefer, prefer being in the sun? Would they prefer... Um, being on the cool end or the warm end or be high or be low or in a tight secluded box. And so I had to give them all of that to, to start reading the animals to see what I would like. And, and now that I've worked with them for a while and what I've come up with is a new cage that I'm going to be doing for, for the adults will basically be a six to eight foot long, um, as wide as I can make it between two to three feet wide. And I'm actually going to have a hole in the floor on my uh, spotlight radiant heat panel end, 
and that hole will lead down to a nest box or um, hide box, whatever you prefer. And so what will happen during the day is that nest box, hide box, will be being warmed by the radiant heat panel while the snake's basking. And then when I cool down at night, which I'm going to do year-round, but as I cool down at night, the animal will be able to retreat into that nest box that has been warmed throughout the day. Now it's only going to be a few degrees warmer, but they can retain the heat for so long into the night, it'll carry them through to the next morning. Um, so the new design will actually have a slide-out um, hide spot underneath that um, end of the, the cage, um, you know, hopefully to collect eggs or, or you know, we'll take an animal out or clean clean the hide. Um, so that's what I'm going to be working towards. That's what I'm actually building now. Um, I'm not going to move my animals this year because I actually have a female that's building follicles now. So I'm going to just keep going with what they're in now. But um, next season, that they'll be in that type of caging. Wow, that's, that's cool. pretty awesome. That's all. That's an awesome setup. <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess. I guess you know. I think we've had a couple people on the show that have talked about you know their thoughts as far as. Uh, Bolins and the whole idea of them having a nest and and feeling secure and maybe that's one of the reasons why females don't go the distance. Um, you know that that's hopefully you'll have success with that. But then Frederick, I don't think that he does that, does he? Uh, no, for, for, I believe Frederick's eggs were collected last year just under a piece of cork bark that the female was going under and laid her eggs. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I would think this year they're going to just lay them right in his hand and put them in the incubator. Just, just um, drop them but, right yeah, there. I think yeah. last year they just did them right underneath a uh, hide box, I mean, underneath that piece of cork bark. So I think if your animals are conditioned to their environment and they feel secure and they're into their routine, um, I don't think it's just as important as maybe the first year that you're trying with maybe new animals in your collection and then giving them that more secure hide. I, I really, you know, keep thinking temperature, getting all your components the right way, but but playing with the temperatures and, and the way your feeding regime is, I think, are the two biggest factors, personally. Right. Okay. Well, that's glad because uh, temperature is the next thing that I wanted to talk about. And as you mentioned a couple minutes ago, you know, I think that one of the things that kind of people sh- – I know for myself is kind of the idea that, you know, are you able to keep these animals in, say, your standard, uh, you know, python room where you have an ambient temperature of 80 degrees, you know, like I use diamond pythons with me as an example. They're not in my reptile room because obviously they have to be uh, kept colder. Um, what's your approach when it comes to um, temperatures? Uh, what's your? I know we talked a little bit about uh, cycling temperatures and um, you know the radiant heat panel going on and off, and I think you equated it to uh, uh, more or less uh, you know the clouds over there and all that. What's your your thoughts on all that? Well, I, I think these guys are just so efficient at collecting heat, and and they're been programmed for so long to collect heat while you can collect heat that as long as you're providing heat for them, they're going to take advantage of it and stay there and collect it as far hard as they can because they know night or cool temps are coming and they need to store that temperature. So they'll bask and bask and bask and bask and bask if you provide it to them. Um, I think they'll do fine in a reptile room that does not get above 80 as they're ambient 
and maybe just provide them a um, fluorescent UV bulb for daylight so they can simulate basking, and you'll have a happy Boland's python. Um, I don't think you'll breed the Boland's python, but I think you'll have a happy, healthy Boland's python. Um, I'm definitely, even in my off-season, like my Boland's room, my nature of how it's set up, I, I never go below, above 74 in the room. The room is always 74 or below. And right now, um, I'm letting it go down to about 61, 62 at night. Um, I can go lower, but I've found talking with Frederick and some of the other guys, um, and I ran into that RI with my two males that I posted in Ari's uh, Facebook page, um, the beginnings of an RI with the two males, and and I don't think they have to go below 60 degrees. I think it's it's more or less just being consistent with cooler temperatures overall for the animal. Um, they don't need that extreme cold. And, and what I found and what Frederick has found and confirmed is when these guys are stressed, they, they tighten up into a ball like a ball python and they bury their head in the center of those coils. And that's the first sign that, you're, you know, they're under stress um, mm-hmm. from being too cool. And um, they'll tighten up into a ball like that when they're trying to uh, retain heat and all. But when they bury that head tight deep into their coils, you know, they're really getting stressed. Um, I don't know if they're trying to, to, to protect their, their brain or what they're trying to do, but they definitely bury that head deep into the coils. And um, the second thing that starts happening is they get a little bit dull, and they'll actually start raising the – I notice the scales almost get fluffed out, like, you know, like a cage bird when they get sick and they'll ruffle their feathers out and they just look like they're all disheveled. That's kind of like the Bolins look. Huh. Um, the good thing about them is they're so darn hardy, though, really in general that if you provide them with heat, they they overcome those symptoms and by the time they go through their next shed cycle, you have a pristine state back, but you have to really stand it and watch what they're doing and, and get that heat back to them. Now, I got those males to come back out of it. They both shed. They're both eating again. They both look fine. Um, just by giving them a radiant heat panel 24 hours a day, but I still kept my ambient temperatures going down to the low 60s at night and only going up to 70 to 74 during the day. But just giving that radiant heat panel, which they stayed under the whole time, day and night, was enough to get them to snap out of what they had going on. And I really believe that they're so active because the females are starting to build follicles and all the conditions are starting to tell them to look for a mate. They were cruising their cages a lot more than the females were, and the females were taking advantage of basking during the day and collecting that heat to get them through the night where the males weren't. They were more on the move, walking around and everything else and paying attention to basking. And I think that's that's what caused the problem with them. So I've given them a little bit more heat than the females, but the females are mm-hmm. still during the day. I'm, I'm half hour of heat, half hour off, half hour, half hour off right now this time of year. And I'll probably continue that year-round. Okay. Very cool. What about, <clears throat> When it gets down to 60 degrees at night, what are... What are what are some of the observations that you noticed you with want to them? Hear, you, want to hear something really, you want to hear something really strange? I walked in my room yeah. today, and the room was 65 degrees, and I felt uh-huh. like the room was too warm. When do you walk into a Python <laughs> room? Never. That never I'm like, happened. dude, you're losing your mind. Why are you thinking this room is too warm at 65? Wow. But, but when I first started cooling these guys down, you know, and I, I, I actually had last year I brought them down to 48, believe it or not. 
and I didn't have any issues with the animals because I was providing a lot more heat during the day. Um, it's it's insane when you go into these rooms and the, the thing is that cold. But I'm sorry to interrupt you, Eric. I, I just no, no, I no. thought it was funny when I walked in there at 65, <laughs> and I'm like, this python room is too warm. I was like, oh, oh man. Yeah, I can weird. relate to that because uh, I walked into my python room today and it was uh, 70 degrees, and I said, man, this is too cold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just yeah, walk yeah. in and you're like, oh, my gosh. But, uh, huh, that's interesting. So I guess what I was going to ask you is, like, when it gets down to those temps, what are the snakes doing? Are they are they going into their hide box? Are they uh, just yeah. tighten up in a coil, or what's your observation? They do go into their, they go into a hide and they're very secure. I gave them, uh, each female, well, every snake actually has two boxes. Um, uh-huh. And the boxes I fill with sphagnum moss, and I've found um, that they definitely don't prefer the sphagnum to be too moist. They definitely like it almost dry. And they'll go in there, and they definitely pack that up a little bit around them. And uh, they'll, they'll, they'll go into a coil. Um, but not as tight as when they're starting to be stressed by it. But they'll be in that box, they'll be coiled up, and they'll they'll not move all night long. They'll just be in that box. And then when the lights come on in the morning and the radiant heat panel comes on, um, again, my light, my I only use fluorescent um, lights because I'm just trying to provide them a light cycle. I, I'm a big believer in light cycle. So I'm not trying to get any heat out of my bulb. It's just there strictly to provide a light cycle. And I have a radiant heat panel right next to that bulb. So when the light comes on, the snake knows it's going to get warm because the radiant heat panel comes on at the same time. So the lights will come on, and I would say within a half an hour, they come out. And um, they use their tongue, and they flick around. And they definitely go right up, and they coil right underneath that um, uh, basking spot. And they'll just bask. And once they reach whatever temperature they're reaching, I, I shoot them with the the gun in there, like 80, 81 to 83 degrees. Then they'll start cruising the cage if they're in hunger mode. If they're not, they'll sit there and bask all day. And uh, maybe like an hour or two hours before the lights go off, um, they go back and they'll get back into their hide box. Um, I'll go down there to see and the lights are still on and, and everybody's in their hide box already, and I know that they know that the light's about to get off. Huh. So, you know, I, I cut them way back on, you know, I keep looking at charts of uh, Papua New Guinea, and, um, you know, what I was saying about the cloud cover and all is th- there's times of the day um, their temperatures don't necessarily change too much, but they go where they get full sunlight. To like, I saw one chart that said only like three and a half hours a day of full sunlight. The rest is all cloud cover at certain times of the year, and it, and it, and it's for like a three- to four-month period. So right. that's what started making me think that, you know, okay, so your ambient temperature could still be 70 to 75 degrees, but if the snake's not out there in the sunlight, basking, getting up to 82 to 84 degrees or whatever they want to get up to, um, they're really not achieving that. So it is essentially a cooling period at that point because even though the ambient temperatures are the same, they're not having as much access to the sun to, to, to warm up to those temperatures. So that's why I started cutting back on the heat panel um, and giving them less and less uh, heat during the day, just periods where they could bask. As long as the right. light's on, though, I do confuse them because if the light's on, they think that the sun should be warming them up, but the heat panel goes off. So... 
you might be better off with I just like the way a radio key panel works. You know, um, I'm friends with that Bob Pound from Pro Products, and, you know, he really explained to me how that radium heat panel works and how it's heating the animal up, and it's most like sunlight. So I, I really do like using the radium heat panels on them. But Frederick, I believe, just heats his animals with a bulb. Um, he has right. a basking bulb, a UV bulb, and he, and he has another bulb that throws heat. Um, and he, he he's obviously very successful with it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, right. There, there's more ways to skin a cat, I guess. Right. Oh, tons. <laughs> so, yeah, you, br- you bring up UV lighting. I mean, um, this is a topic that I find myself wondering about. Um, you know, we know that pythons don't require UV uh, to be kept and bred successfully in captivity. However, is it one of those things that could better improve uh, you know, their overall health and long-term success, uh, whether it be with keeping or breeding. Um, I mean, it just seems odd that animals that are so geared around the sun would Absolutely. not require UV lighting. I don't know. What's your thoughts? Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I, I definitely, I think it can be done without it because, again, Frederick, what he's doing, he's not using real high-intensity UV bulbs or UV paint bulbs. Um, but it is providing a little bit. So it obviously is an essential for being successful with the animal. But I, I, I agree with you. I can't see an animal that's so geared to the sun not getting some kind of a benefit, um, whether it's longevity of life, um, more fertility, um, healthier clutches or something. There's got to be a benefit to that. If that animal's so geared for it, it wasn't designed to, to use the sun for those things and not get some kind of a benefit out of it. So I'm going to continue providing it just if nothing else that makes me feel better. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, I often wonder, like, here's an idea and I'm just thinking out loud, but you know, we, we think about all these things. Like I think of people, about people that get our eyes and they say like, you know, I don't understand my, my heat is right. The, this is right. The temperatures are right. But I would think, I mean, if you're geared to the sun, like even just for a person, when you go out in the sun, you just feel better. So is it like yeah. a, you know what I mean? Like, is it, is it physically like relieve some of that stress and maybe that would keep them from, uh, you know, developing on our eyes where we think it's because of, you know, a, it's really, you know, maybe something geared towards that. Yeah, I, I totally just, agree with that. I, another thought on our eyes, if I might, is uh, one thing I'm definitely convinced about with blood pythons. Everybody's always saying humidity and their RIs and they're all worried about temperatures and all that with them, but they're very hard snakes. And 90% of the RIs out there, believe it or not, are from stagnant air, in my opinion, in the cage. Um, blood pythons definitely need ventilation, good ventilation. And if you know anything about blood pythons or short tails, they'll go months before they defecate. And when they defecate, they defecate. You think an elephant came <laughs> in your house. I mean, yeah. like you got to put a sho- get a shovel, get some gloves, and get in there and start cleaning. And the problem is, is you know, the ammonia smell and everything else. And and literally, I don't care how stringent your cleanliness is, people go to work, people do this, people do that, and the snake could defecate in the cage, and it can be even an hour later, and that has done its damage to the animal. And, and I'm definitely... I'm 100% positive with blood pythons that it irritates the lines of, of the lungs of the snake and, and it causes RIs that pop up unexpectedly with these animals. You clean the cage, you don't notice it, 
but it's already done its damage and it's already, you know, stressed the animal and caused that problem. And uh, when I started increasing ventilation on, on them many, many years ago, it helped with RIs tremendously. So huh. when I got into the ball and I, um, I, I designed my cages. I don't know if you saw my cages, but my cages, I don't have any viewing pane of glass or plexiglass or anything on my cages. My back wall is nothing but a plastic-coated pegboard, and my front doors are nothing but pegboard. That's how we used to do it many years ago. Berms became popular, and everybody was breeding berms. That's how everybody built their cages. But it's it's a really great thing when you have a, a fan running in your room just creating air movement. As the air moves over those pegboard holes, it's drawing air out of the cage. So on the front of the cage, while the air is going past it, it's drawing air out, and it's drawing air in the back of the cage. And with a montane species like Bull and I, I, I was convinced that they needed a lot of fresh air and not stagnant conditions. Because with birds and whatnot, too, from higher elevations, you know, they really need that, that fresh air and not stagnant conditions. So I, I think a lot of other species probably could benefit from more ventilation um, in combating our eyes. Huh. Yeah, that's mm. interesting. I never would have thought about that. Yeah. It does make some sense because some people do, uh, they put the uh, humidifiers in there and that can, with some of the things you can put in there, that can purify the room as well as get the air moving. So that might be even more ventilation than needed and that helps. So, right. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, I'll know that for my short tails and my uh, and my blogs. I'll have to go check my ventilation I, on those guys. <laughs> I don't have any. <laughs> yeah. I don't have any, so I'm good. So. Yeah. Um, so okay. So what about feeding? Um, what type of feeding regimen are you are you doing with the species? Um, and what about you know the, the size of the prey? Uh, you know, and any thoughts on a varied diet with uh, with these guys? Um, well, I think I might have touched on it in my roundtable. I'm I'm lucky where I have a very local person that breeds rodents for the local pet stores and some local breeders and they have access to, to um, sell them to wholesalers. So I'm able to go there and get my stuff weekly alive. So doing that, I'm able to also feed that prey um, before I feed it. Um, so I can vary the diet. I don't know if it's necessary, but again, you know, some of these things we do, we do it to make ourselves feel better about everything. You know? So I do do that. I do vary the <laughs> diet. And I'm not going to lie, I've told a couple of blood people that um, the, I don't know what this grass nettle is. There's a nettle that grows in this area, and we used to give it to the pheasants and different birds. Um, it's a weed that grows in people's lawns, and people spend thousands of dollars to kill this weed, but we called it wacky weed. And when we <coughs> gave it to our birds, the males would get lit up and, like, you know, harass the females so much to breed that you'd have to back off on it. You had to give it in doses because whatever is in this weed, whatever vitamin is in there, stimulated birds during the breeding season. Um, it was like Viagra for birds. It was like incredible. So <laughs> I've experimented with actually feeding that to the rats um, before I fed it to the snakes. Um, okay. And I have no idea if it does anything, but I, I do do it. And, um, you know, like I say, I'm sure it's more for me than anything else. But I know a lot of people in the past have thought maybe there's something in the diet of the prey items that Bull and I eat that's lacking in captivity. Um, so it's just something that I play around with, and I don't think it has any bearing on being successful. 
but um, I for sure do do it, and like I say, just to make myself feel better. As far as schedules, um, I, I definitely probably feed more than other people, but again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm smaller meals, I'm more frequently, I'm big on animals that have a high metabolism, having food, you know, feeding that engine, that, you know, if they have fast metabolism, it's for a reason. And I think food needs to be going through their system and keeping them active and keeping them going. So I do it by feeding smaller prey items, um, and I balance it with the heat that I provide and and frequency. But I do definitely try to get uh, more meals in probably than the average person does. Okay. What about as uh, have you ever experimented with uh, cycle feeding and any thoughts on that? Um, um yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's huge with the females. Um, and through the summer, I fed them probably a normal five to seven day small rat meal. Um, and then I backed off just before the breeding season for a little bit um, and fed them maybe every 10 to, to 14 days. But um, as we got into cooling temperatures and everything, I, I kept the males uh, a little bit more lean to keep them active. But the females, I definitely started increasing the feeding um, because uh, I really think that's going to help stimulate building uh, the follicles and get them uh, going with all of that. I think as long as they have food coming in, you know, Mother Nature's telling them, hey, food, things are good here, things are plentiful, this is a good year to reproduce. So I, I use small meals. I'm using, you know, on a, on a nine-foot female, that's uh, probably around 13, 14 pounds, um, feeding her just medium-sized rats. Um, and she said, like I said, this is the first year I'm convinced 100% she's building follicles right now, and uh, she's got to look that, um, you know, Frederick's animals have, and uh, real really excited about what's going on with her. And I definitely think um, my feeding regime with her had a lot to do with getting her to this point. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, I hope she goes the distance for you. Um, yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Um, and uh, something that um, I don't think we've ever really focused on this topic on the show, and I know that it was in the roundtable uh, questions, but we never got to hit on it. But um you know, I was looking at some of your posts, um, and there was one that you had that was uh, a couple weeks ago, and you mentioned about um, shallow water bowls. Um, can you elaborate on the on this for the listeners and why you would recommend using shallow water bowls? Um, just in general, for I think I think you had mentioned for bloods and short tails as well. Um, yeah. Um, well, especially with with baby bloods, but I've. I've no, I, I definitely love talking snakes to anybody and everybody, and I don't care if they're just getting their first snake or if they've, you know, got experience for 30 years. If somebody's willing to talk snakes, man, I'm always willing to talk. So I get a lot of people asking questions. I have them send me uh, pictures of their setups or something, and I just notice a lot of issues with border bowls, but with baby bloods for sure. I mean, I've definitely, you know, literally raised thousands of those things. Um they're a high-strung species that are a little bit nervous. And, you know, babies that are very insecure at that moment, they'll stay in their hive box, like, till death. And if you don't, if you put, I put a, I use, um, I go to get deli cups because I can, they're 10 cents each. I can use them and instead of washing a million bowls, I throw them away and I put a new deli cup in with all my babies. That's just the way I do it. 
but even a, a deli cup, just a small deli cup in a shoebox-sized container with a blood python, they'll stay in their hide box, and, and you'll look at them, and if you don't stay on top of them, they'll look like, you know, like they're shriveled up in a, in a toaster oven. And they just need that water, and they just can't find that water in that water bowl. They're just they're not exploring their cage. They're just staying. They're very shy and recluse. And they you lose babies just from, from not drinking, even though there's a huge water bowl in front of them. So I do keep a water bowl in there, but um, I also went to keeping um, a clean bottom on the tub and letting a little film of water in there that was always clean, and they could always just drink that water, lay in that water, and stay hydrated. And I would keep the baby bloods like that for until their first shed, which, as you know, it can be you know six months, months down yeah. the road before a baby sets yeah. uh, blood sheds. So I'd keep mm-hmm. them like that all the way to then. Never have skin issues. Never have any problems. Nothing. They they're like you know they, they can live in water like when they're at that age without having any problems. But then I started looking at older snakes and everything, and, and I really believe that in general most snakes find their water by accident. A lot of water bowls that I see in things are small, and they're in the middle of the the, the box, and the, and the snake's coiled around that water bowl, but it's just coiled around it because it's got nothing else to get some contact security about. But when that snake's roaming around, they always crawl to the edge of the container, and they're crawling around, they're crawling around the edge of the container. It's, it's hard for a snake to go to the middle of that box, raise its head up on a four-inch dish, stick its head in there to get water, like knowing that that's water there. They definitely find it by accident, and they're not finding it as often as they really need it. Um, they may survive for 30 years from you, but I don't think they're properly hydrated like they always should be. And a lot of people have that up-and-die syndrome where snakes, you know, they say, I don't know what happened. I was single spot before, and it was, you know, all of a sudden it was just dead. And there's a lot of reasons why that happens, but I do think dehydration is one of the answers for some of that sometimes. So, if you, you know, when you put a water bowl in a, in a cage, you know, a lot of times there was a water bowl in that cage in the same spot and nothing going on. But you take it out, you wash it, and you put that water bowl back in that same spot, and immediately the snake comes over and investigates that, and it'll drink, and it'll drink, and it'll drink, and it'll drink. If that water was just there five minutes ago, but the animal wasn't drinking out of it. Now you put that new water in there, and it's just as clean as the water that was in there, and now they're drinking out of it because they were stimulated to go check out what you just put in that cage. Right. he didn't know it was there. So I've I definitely switched all my animals to those low, heavy crocs. Even a big animal can't tip that over, just the nature of the design of it. So for a water bowl, I use those shallow crocs. I like the 12-inch ones for adult pythons, uh, and they're like three inches tall, I would say. Um, and I put it in the corner of a cage or in an area that's frequented by the animal a lot. And... Um, I'll put for bloods because they do like a good soak. I'll still use a cutlery pan um, in the cage that the animal could, when he does find it, get in there and take a nice soak. But a, a water bowl that's easy access, especially to a blood python or a Boland's python that drink, drink, drink heavily, I think is a huge factor that a lot of people overlook. And, um, you know, it's definitely something very key in for me to make sure that those bowls are in a spot for each animal you know, because they have their preferences where they want to be in a cage, each snake. And as right. keepers, we all know where those spots are. And I think it's key to get those water bowls in the proper spot and at the proper height. And they got to be big enough around, too. I mean, a, a real small diameter bowl, even though there's fresh water in there every day, it's hard. It's like shooting an arrow through a 
come on, you know, for that steak buffet night. Um, right. So, you know, that's just my feelings on it. Okay. What about, and that's that's interesting, but what about the actual uh, thought of water itself? I mean, this is something that, you know, I I know even myself really haven't put much thought into whether you use filtered water or tap water, and I guess it really depends on the tap water in your area. But um, what what's your thoughts, yeah. especially with like you said with Poland's that? Yeah, but, uh, well, all my I, I with my blood pythons, I used my town water, bred a lot of snakes, never had a problem. Now that my collection is smaller and and it's not such a chore for me though, and being what I'm working with nowadays, I do buy bottled water now. Um, and my thought is, you know, my drinking water, my town tells me, is safe for me to drink. But I have, I've always had fish tanks, and I have fish, and I have a fish tank now. Uh, I have a nice 150 in the wall in my living room. And I can't take my tap water and put it in there without treating it for chlorine and chloramines, or my fish are dead in half an hour. And I re- realize it's different, but I, I, I still say to myself, you know, why put that in an animal that's used to being up in the mountains of Papua New Guinea and, you know, drinking this probably such, you know, pristine water? <clears throat> why am I going to pump that stuff into a system when, you know, they're all they're hard to breed, let's face it. There's a lot of things going on, so why not take out all the variables that could be causing that? So. I do give bottled water, you know, and a lot of people tell me, well, I got well water. I got well water. Well water is good, but a lot of well well water isn't good, you know. So if you're going to give them what you have, I think you should take it to to, uh, at least a good tropical fish place and have the guys test it for you and tell you what's in there and what's going on with it, you know, before you start using it. Um, Again, like I say, in my town, my fish die when I use it, but yet I raise a hell of a lot of blood pythons on it, so... I don't know, but with the collection I have now, I definitely use bottled water. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So um, now let's get into what everybody really kind of, the big question that surrounds Boland pythons, and that's breeding. Now, you have not been successful breeding, but you've tried and currently are trying, and you got a lot of thoughts on this stuff, and, and, and you know, we're anxious to learn what you got with this because um, – Eric and I do not have Boland's pythons, and I have no idea what we're talking about when it comes to Boland's pythons. Just a lot of educated guessing. So um, when it comes to breeding this species, what are your thoughts on some of the major factors that uh, would get them to go the distance? Um, Some of the major factors are kind of what we've been touching on. I I definitely... Mm -hmm. I definitely think that the increasing heat at the wrong time with a female that's building follicles will will shut her down and stop her from from going the distance. So the first thing we have to overcome is is getting the proper temperatures to get her through um, to her ovulation. Um, I don't think the males need to be cooled as much as every you know people are been trying, myself included. Like I say, I'm just going into the 60s. Um, I definitely, with blood pythons, I would breed my animals from October to December. That's when I put males with females. That's when males actively bred the females. And that's when they would stop breeding the females by the end of December because I just bred, 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 bred. But yet I wasn't getting clutches till June. 
and sometimes I wouldn't get clutches till the following year. Blood Python mm-hmm. is like masters at storing sperm. So you start wondering with a python like the Boland's python, maybe that animal, being that it's in harsher conditions, can't retain viable sperm for as long as some of these other pythons. Maybe you have to be more keyed in on when you're putting your males with the females or keeping your males with the females. Maybe that window is a very short window compared to other species. Um, So that's something I'm definitely doing this year when everything is right. My female is in the shed right now. When she comes out of the shed, the male's going in there. And, you know, your males will tell you, you guys know, if the, if the male's super active and on that female right away, chances are she's, you know, receptive and, and in season and in a good spot to, to be reproductive um, for that season. I've had, you know, bloods that the females, the males show no interest in those females for the zoos. You're not going to get eggs out of them. The next year he's all over and you get eggs. You know, there's just, the female really governs what the male's going to do on a species like this, I think. So, keeping her building those follicles right now and, and not overheating her so she shuts down and keeps going with the process and getting that male in at the right time. Keep feeding that female so she does think times are good and um, the food's coming in, so I'm going to reproduce this year without getting too obese. Um, I think those are the key factors for, for, for success, you know, getting them in to get that male in there, keep them with her until she ovulates, and once she ovulates, you know, that's separate the sexes and let her do her thing with basket. Right, and, and you did say something about um, uh, having the female slightly overweight prior to breeding season. Um, I mean, that, that like, you, you don't want them massive, but you want them a little bit chunky before you let them go yeah, down, my, right? Yeah, like, my female still has a long, lean look, but she's definitely yeah. bigger in girth, um, and, and Frederick and I like to say in the black section, where the bands kind of fade out and the animal goes to black, you know, from that section down, if she's got a little bit of sickness to her more than the male, um, you know, that's where I want my animals this year. I've tried last year, and I think my animals were definitely a size and age last year, and um, I didn't see as much as I'm seeing this year because I was keeping that female a lot leaner. And, you know, this year I fed her a little bit more heavily and I keep going back to the Paul Miles thing. Um, mm-hmm. Twitter keeps telling me not to feed him too much, but I can't help myself. <laughs> I'm definitely giving him a little bit more. But, again, you know, uh, I think I, my other conditions are balancing that and um, I'm thinking that the females will be really good this year. So um, I definitely, like I say, you know, I'm, I'm feeding them to bring them, I think, uh, more than other people would think would be the norm with the species. <laughs> okay, very cool. Um, now you you posted about your bullens and your thoughts that even if it remains seventy degrees Fahrenheit year round in their wild environment, uh, for argument's sake, that there could be heavy cloud cover during parts uh, that would limit their basking, uh, and that would kind of be almost effectively cooling them. Uh, right. Basically, we need to think of uh, their environment and also think about little micro environments that are affecting these guys. So, exactly. So, can you kind of elaborate on that one a little bit? Yeah, I, I believe Ari and, and Mark uh, have shot nests of the females, and they're, they're, they can be the female in a nest chamber can be up to 20 degrees warmer than the ambient temperature outside. So, yeah, that the air might be cool out there, but in that in that nest chamber, it's going to be a little bit warmer. So 
you got to wrestle with that with yourself too, because while we're cooling the animal to the temperatures of the ambient temperature, it's really not what's in their microclimate in in, in uh, Mother Nature. Um, right. You know, but like I say, I was looking at these charts from Papua New Guinea, and there's definitely cycles of the year where the sunlight is is dried out because it's a rainy season, and the temperatures and daylight doesn't vary overall. You know, they remain at roughly 12 hours throughout the year of daylight, mm-hmm. but the amount of sunlight getting to the ground varies uh, down to three hours per day. So it's got to be affecting a snake like the Bolans that's uh, basking and collecting all that heat. Um, I, I, this whole summer, my snake room never got above 75 degrees. They were 75 all summer was that ambient, um, but they had the basking spots. So I think keeping, keeping them a lot cooler than most people do on their ambient temperatures, but providing the heat um, sporadically and not overdoing it with the heat is, I mean, look at crested geckos. People keep them, right? They keep them at, at room temperature and something that, you know, typically you wouldn't think as a reptile. Um, they just keep them in their, their 70s year-round, their 60s in their house year-round, you know, and breed the animals very successfully. Um, I think with pythons, we're just so geared, except for diamonds, to, to keep our pythons a lot warmer. And uh, I think these guys just you know, they don't need an ambient temperature in their enclosure if you're providing a basket more than 70 to 75 degrees. Cool. I mean, and you're exactly correct. I mean, my first year breeding my bread lie, uh, everybody's like, drop them down. I'm like, I can't physically do that. Everything like in my body tells me to stop it. So, you know, it was kind of difficult to try to get them, to, to get it through my head that they'd be okay. Um at a lower temperature uh, than the other guys. So I guess it's kind yeah. of our nature well, to keep everything a little warmer. You know, when I when I, I bred Sanzinia um, mm-hmm. many, many years ago, and I, I was told, like, I was the first private person. Tracy thought I might be the first private person to ever breed Sanzinia. And um, I, I had him down in Daytona, all the babies down there, and Philip DeVajot came up to the table, and he's like, you bred him, like I did. And he's like, so what did you do? And I said, you know, I, I just took him out of the snake room. I kept him in um, another part of my house where they had access to 50 degrees. I didn't even provide them with a hot spot. I mean, they would go up to like 65 during the day and like 58, 59 at night. And I didn't even provide them really with a hot spot or anything. And, and he knew it. He's like, I can remember turning uh, um a log or something over, he said to me, and then there was frost on the ground, and there was a Sanzinia. And he's like, I just knew that they had to get a lot cooler than people were calling them. And I was lucky. I bred the greens, and I bred the mandarins. And, and you know, I never had to make to that, species, uh, to that um, temperatures before, ever. And so that wow. definitely has given me a little bit of confidence going on with the ball and I, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's Definitely. a beautiful species. <laughs> I love them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I do too, and I'm so sorry that I got rid of the animals because uh, I would love to have them in my collection right now. Yeah. That sorry, Alan. Cool. <laughs> it's okay. No, it's okay. You, you can jump in whenever you want. Yeah. So, of course, I did lose my spot because you were talking about Sanzindi, and I had to Google a picture. So, um, <laughs> that had to happen. Uh so got it all right all right uh what have you what have been your observations so far when 
trying to breed these guys, have you learned anything just from your attempts and from watching your guys that you're trying to breed? Yeah, you know, a lot of people um, say that the males are very aggressive breeders. Um, and I know Frederick got a lock today, actually. He put his male in with a female who's... Um, and he had a picture on Facebook of uh, the pair locked up, and I think he only had them together for a few hours. My males uh, last year, it wasn't until, um, I'm going to say, late February, early March, before my male became really active. Um, So I'm actually kind of holding myself off from getting that male towards the female right now. She's in the shed, actually, right now, so when she comes out of the shed, I will probably try the male. But if he's not aggressively on her, I'm going to pull him out and and wait a little bit longer. Um, So one of the things that I've learned for myself, anyway, is, you know, I'm not going to waste attempts uh, with them because I definitely think that male needs to be in there at the right time. So I'm going to try to hold off and try to not, you know, get him in there and just so I can say I saw breeding and hold him off until... uh, the times are a lot better for for that. So um, that's probably one thing I learned last year. I definitely learned about, you know, how far to cool them down um, and what their stress levels were um, during the cooling process. So that was a huge learning curve to to get over um, between last year and this year. Um, I feel more confident about that. But, you know, it's just a big learning curve. You know, every year you got to just take it and uh, do it. I wish I had 40 animals to work with so, you know, you could be told things a lot faster. But, with six mm-hmm. animals, you got to take what you get, and you got to learn as you go. And if it takes you ten years, I don't care what it's going to take. I'm just going to stick with it till I do it, you know. And uh, that's that's the whole thing with working with these guys right now. So if I put in the first attempt, uh, they wouldn't be the challenge. They wouldn't be the the animal I I, I want to be working with right now at this point in my my reptile career, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, I needed a species like this at this point. Something that was a challenge. Get you back to the basics of what made you love working with reptiles in the first place and not worry about what color was on their skin or, mm. you know, who had it, who, you know, did this or who did that. Just go back to the basics of the animal and what it is and, you know, making it um, do what Mother Nature intended. And once you do that, then you can consider yourself successful in that species. So if it takes 10 years, man, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm going to do it until I do it, you know? Right. Very cool. Very cool. So this, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I was yeah, going to say. So, are these guys? I don't know why I don't know this question, and this is probably going to sound <laughs> stupid. But are these guys breeding in the springtime, or are they breeding in the like the cooler time well, in the wild? From yeah. what I've heard from Ari, is I, I believe that they they've actually. Um, recorded females with eggs at every month of the year, but there is a cluster of them <laughs> at certain times. But, you know, animals in captivity definitely act, act different than animals in the wild. And right. I use I use, I use my blood pythons because, you know, I, I mean, I worked with the species for over 20 years. So those are my, you know, I could talk about them in my sleep type of thing and be accurate with the information I feel. But those guys, you know, they also come from an area where there's 12 hours of light, 12 hours of darkness, pretty much year-round. Yet my right. animals, you know, to create a cycle in my room, I would use light um, because temperature stays the same for them pretty much and and light stays the same for them where they come from pretty much. So 
you know, you still have to create that cycle in your room. So, you know, I, w- I would go from literally one day of 14 hours of daylight down to six hours of daylight and just, you know, just turn my timers and just make it six hours of daylight. It's not theoretically supposed to happen because it doesn't happen in a while. But when I would go to February and I would, I would crank my lights back on 14 hours a day, all my females in the room would ovulate within a month of me doing that. Because I created a cycle, I created a rhythm, and whatever you need to do to get those snakes in a cycle and a rhythm, um, I believe is when you have your breeding seasons. I think in a while they take advantage of whatever the conditions are and they'll breed whenever. But there's definitely a clustering, from what I understand from Ari, of when females are laying and uh, producing eggs, even though they have found them, I, pre- I think, pretty much every month of the year. Wow. Huh. I do have a uh, follow-up thought to that. You know, um Often I hear people, we've we've had many people, and we talk about animals, especially coming from areas like Papua New Guinea where they have, a you know, like 12 hours of light and 12 hours of, of dark. But is it possible that, you know, even the slightest variation in that, so like say all of a sudden they're used to 12-12 and then they go to 13, you know, 11, um, could that be enough to cue them? Like, it, it, we may not think that that's important, but I don't know. These little subtle cues make me think that, you know, maybe that is important. And what we're seeing, just like you just said, is like you're exaggerating that. So that even makes it, you know, even more uh, exaggerated. So maybe people are missing the the boat when it comes to some of these uh you know, Indonesian species where they basically are coming, you know, a 12-12 cycle in the wild, even the slightest right. variation I, in that. Because it's not always 12-12. I mean, it's right. <laughs> you know what I mean? There is a variation. Absolutely. And 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 I think that's what separates the men from the boys when you're talking about harder-to-breed species. They're, they're more um, tuned in to, to keying in on changes like that to, to cue them to start the reproductive cycle and the animals that are easier to breed um you know it's it's not as important to but uh, when you have a very hard to breed species like a bones python you got to pull every tool out of your toolbox and uh you know try things that maybe aren't happening in nature but you're just trying to create that cycle that rhythm um of getting those animals into a yearly process tracy you know she's had more imported blood pythons than anybody come in that she's acclimated and then eventually bred she she preferred to to get um, a baby snake and raise it to breeding age to breed versus a wild caught because it took less time to acclimate a baby snake to the rhythm of your room, even though it's three four years um, before you're breeding them. Um, it's still quicker than taking an animal out of the wild as an adult that's tuned into what's going on there and trying to create a mm-hmm. rhythm in a cycle and getting them into the routine of what's going on in your room so that you you change their clock onto that rhythm for breeding. So, you know, you may be putting your mail when all these captive babies together um, and you're getting so much success, you're like, why the hell can't I breed this wild claw? Because that wild claw is on a different clock altogether. You know what I mean? It takes a long time sure. to get a wild claw onto that clock. Right. right. That makes sense. I've heard about that, especially with, in like, Indo and species that I work with. So probably be very true with Bolins and things like that. So, yeah. Cool. Um, Keith, now, uh, there, I've, I've heard some things, and I know Jason Balin has actually 
told me this one before, is that females feel the need to be secure in, like, a hide box, especially when nesting. Uh, do you think, like, a good nest box is a factor? I mean, you know, of course, we say this, and then earlier you said that Frederick's female just laid them underneath a piece of cork bark. So I guess that would be an animal preference, I guess. Yeah, I, I think it's probably individual uh, with your animal and how comfortable it is in its environment. I, I have a very good friend um, who who has a store um, and a facility where he uh, does educational programs, um, and he has hundreds of kids come in that store and bang on the glass of, you know, he's got sloths and he's got Kodai, mm. he has binturongs, and he has a lot of reptiles, and he has black throat monitors, and he has all this stuff. And I, he, he's another guy that's very in tune with his animals. And I can't tell you how many species of animals he's bred in that store, even under those conditions with kids in there, you know, banging on the glass, and the animals coming out and doing a show, and everything else like that. I, th- I think it's what the animals condition to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 there's two schools of thought on animals in captivity. Some schools of thought believe that the animal should be so comfortable with everything going on around it's a uh, thing that it's not disturbed and, and it will act more natural and breed. I tend to believe that animal, I like my animals a little bit more on the wild side. I don't mind my, my Amazon tree bow striking at me or a blood python having a go at me or any of that kind of stuff. When I was breeding birds, the, the more wild the bird was, the more the bird acted like the bird. And, and mm-hmm. I believe that's with snakes too. Like I say, like my snakes know I'm in the room, but they're not disturbed by it because they're behind pegboard. They can see me. They can sense me. They can smell me. They know I'm in that room. Um, so they're used to the interaction of me going in and out of my room, but I'm not disturbing them by cleaning the cage next to them and, you know, pulling out um, the paper to clean and rattling them and them get stressed out. Um, so I think it's really highly on how you keep that animal and what you do inside and outside of your room on how secure of a hide they need. Now, I can tell you that my bull and I female, I, the container store, I love that store. I mean, I go in there and I see so much stuff that I can read, you know. And I found yeah. these pitch black boxes that have these locking tops that are very sturdy. And mm-hmm. having those handles that come up and lock that top on tight is key because those females will get in there. And I like having a hide that she's in and she's got so much contact security all the way around her, on the sides, on the top, on the bottom. So when she's in there, she feels like she's wedged in there and nothing's going to get her. Um, so I do provide those boxes, and when they're in there at night, they're in there at night. Um, so I do provide it, um, but I do think it's individual to the female. And if you're having problems with female breeding, that's definitely one of the first things I would look at, too, is making her feel as secure as you possibly could. Makes sense, and uh, it's something I've heard. So that's cool. But yeah. I can tell you, my blood pythons, they they did not care. They they would uh, lay eggs absolutely anywhere, everywhere. <laughs> I mean, it didn't matter. They, you know, I, I yeah. stopped giving them mess boxes. That, that's what I did. My carpet pythons, I had four females lay on top of the box. And I'm like, all right, right. get it. Nobody, nobody gets boxes anymore. So, right. yeah, they just put it wherever. So, yeah, interesting. All right. Um this is a little bit off topic, but um, 
I was, uh, I was, I really liked your post that you had about uh, Daytona and uh, yeah. back in the heyday. And uh, you know, <laughs> um, can you maybe, yeah, try to light a a spark into to these younger people that maybe don't understand it? You know, <laughs> what was it like? I mean, I guess for. Like for me now, Tinley is kind of that way, but I don't even think it, it's it's quite to the level of where Daytona was and its prime uh, yeah, back in the never, day. It, I mean, you definitely experienced it, right? I mean, you went down there in its heyday, and 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 there's just nothing like it. Like you know, I'll I'll, I'll kind of go back to what I was saying in that post. Is it's that was the show of shows where every, I don't care if you were from Japan or Indonesia or Sweden or Germany or what, everybody went to that show. Anybody who was anybody went to that show. So there wasn't such access to the internet and there wasn't all these other avenues of getting what you've been doing day to day out there and make it blase. So when you went to that show, you had no idea what, somebody was going to have on their table. And it, and it, you know, was the excitement built for years, like months before that show to get down there to see what, you know, um, Gary Sipperly was breeding or, or um, Dick Gergen or Don Hamper or any of the guys from, you know, that started all this stuff. And, and you would go down to that show. And luckily I had a table, um, up until three years ago, I think is roughly when I stopped going to that show. But I always had a table so I could get in beforehand, and that was like such a treat to be honored to be able to get in that show before people could because there was a line outside that I mean wrapped around the building three times. The hotel was booked. You could not find any place in Orlando where it started to to, to stay because that many people traveled from around the world to go there. And wow. You know, when you walk in the doors, like, you just saw the most unbelievable stuff that we all take for granted now because, you know, Internet, Facebook, and everything else, you see it every day. But there, yeah. you only saw it once a year. But the really cool thing was is all the guys that, you know, you read about in a book or uh, or whatever were there. And they were right. very accessible to you at night. So at night, the, the, ho- the hosting hotel, be it in Orlando or Daytona, like basically ran because the reptile people were coming. You know, it was like rolled into town, and you get in there, and and I mean the hotel lobby spilled out onto the mezzanine, out to the beach or wherever. So many people were there. Kevin, Kevin from Nerd would bring down Main Lobster and be cooking them outside on the beach and everything. And everybody was there. You'd walk and see everybody who was anybody in the reptile business, and you would stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning just talking snakes, talking this, talking that. But you made real connections, real friendships, and, and, you know, the information was freer then, and the animals flowed freer then. You know, you'd get an animal before you even had the money to pay for it because you built a face-to-face relationship with that person. And right. there was a lot of trust then and everything. So, you know, somebody would hand, you know, Tracy Parker would give me a blood python and say, pay when you can pay. You know what I mean? That's the kind of trust that was built <laughs> back then. And yeah, it was awesome. You know, you know, I'm all excited going home with this, like, you know, $3,000 snake. And my wife's like, are you out of your mind? But I'm like, well, she gave it to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? What was I going to say? You know? Yeah. 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 So, 
It was just awesome. I mean, it was just such an you, – you got maybe for the whole four days you were down there, you got maybe two hours of sleep because you were just on the run. Once you – you know, everybody was out to, to dinner. I mean, I mean, you literally took over that town. It didn't matter what restaurant you went to. There was reptile people in there. The talk was reptile at every table. And, you know, everybody, you know, you were free to go and just sit down and start talking with whoever you wanted. I, I, I went to the story of – I was really into dwarf monitors, and Frank Rios was there, man. He's the man, you know? Right, And I yeah. just go over his table while he's setting up and start talking to him, and he's like, hey, this guy's really into this. Maybe I'll, uh, you know, talk to him a little bit. He started talking to me. I'm like, Frank, you want to go for lunch? He's like, absolutely. Took him out, bought him lunch, man. I had the best conversation about dwarf monitors, made a great connection. You can't do that over the internet. You can't do that on Facebook. It's very hard. Although I have to say, I met made good friendships with the bowl and I community through Facebook. So, but it was just great sitting down and talking to people one-on-one, you know, it was definitely, uh, definitely something you had to experience to really understand what it was all about. You know? Yeah, that's all awesome. for sure. You know, we try to, uh, we do a, a yearly thing where we call it carpet fest and we try to yeah. recreate that type of thing, you know, like, because, you know, when you're, sitting there talking with somebody until three in the morning drinking beers and you know the conversation weaves in and out you know between reptiles and you know music or you know other things or whatever you do other than reptiles and next thing you know you you realize that oh man you know you really start to you know find out that we do have a lot more in common than just you know reptiles this guy's really cool and i don't know you just really build uh connection that uh kindred you know. souls man i always say you know yeah. you're building a relationship with a kindred soul and and you know the, the reptiles is the basis to open that door but um and open many doors it did for me and and um it, it, it's just an unbelievable thing you know to really sit down with a person one-on-one and talk to them you know i, yeah. I wonder if it the idea I wonder if the I'm sorry. I was wondering if the idea of maybe there's a, a a sort of a saturation when it comes to shows. Like maybe the, you know, I I guess back in that day, you know, there was like like you said, you know, you waited all year for this for the show. And, you yeah. know, now it's like every weekend on the East Coast you could go to a reptile yeah. show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that that show was just so dominant and drew so many of the, I mean, Mark Bell used to bring crazy stuff there and, you know, everybody did, but everybody just waited for that show to do the unveiling. They, you know, if little shows tried to crop up, it took them a lot, a lot of time to get a foothold because nobody was going to them because they were waiting for that show. Nobody wanted to spend their $500, they say, because they were waiting for that show. So it took a long time for the little shows to gain. And, and really the internet is probably what did the big show in, um, you know, finally, um, because it just became instant gratification. You push a button, you give them the numbers on your credit card and the snake is on its way to you, you know, but it just really lost um, a lot for me, the industry and, and meeting those kind of people face to face. Like I say, you know, anybody can be anybody over the internet, but you knew that person when you, talk to them for hours on end over those weekends, you know? Sure. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, you kind of get that at, at, at Tinley, and I do like it that you do kind of get uh, to see friends from kind of all over the country at Tinley Park. Um, yeah. I'm down for that not, this year. 
I mean, my Good. wife and I have already talked about it. We're going. Um, awesome. Whether I have anything to bring or not, I'm going. I'm going to definitely hang with as many people uh, uh, as I've made Good. friends with that are there. And I'm definitely going to, you know, hopefully start making that new routine for me, for sure. Cool. Yeah, I know we do. Uh, we. Oh, go ahead, Owen. Sorry. No, I'm saying I'm, I'm giving Keith one job and one job only. Convince the Viking to get his ass over here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I want I'm, you to I've dog, been working on it. I've been working you, on it. Dog Casper. I don't care what mammal he's playing with right now. You dog <laughs> Casper until he gets over here for Disney yeah. in October. You can tell him I said all of this. Um, yeah, on air, yeah. All of it. Yeah, everything. So you get him over here. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the more guys like that that we can bring in, it, it'll even just kick it up another notch there, you know, for exactly. sure. Exactly. Yeah, and people a... really got to go. They really got to go, and they really got to experience it, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and and the more people you can get going to it, the more people you can understand what the value of that is, I think, uh, you know, it, it could really get back to where it used to be. And I would love to see that, man. I would definitely love to see yeah. it get back to that. And yeah, where I, else are you going to see Eric drunk off his ass stumbling around <laughs> talking about snakes? I mean, that's you know, a highlight. I always tell the story. We were down in uh, Daytona, and um, uh, Category 4 hurricane was coming over Daytona. And, and yeah, and, and Dwayne Hill didn't know what to do, but he said, you know, the show must go on. So we all stuck it out. All those diehards were there. There wasn't anybody there to buy any reptiles, but all the guys were there. Well, I was in a hotel that had underground parking, and they had an underground drop-off. So all of us that were at the show stood in that underground parking. Due to the angle of it, the wind wasn't really coming in there, and we literally just all stood under there drinking beer, watching the town of Daytona get <laughs> oh taken my apart. Oh, my God. You know? So there's street signs, that like big signs for Dunkin' Donuts, like – I think it was Pete Cole ran out there and he took a picture next to that sign in the middle of this Category 4 hurricane. He comes oh back my God. in and the next thing you know, that sign is sparking and lighting up and it actually <laughs> bent over to the ground. The Dunkin' Donuts door ripped open and all the chairs came flying up and go down uh, Main Street at Daytona there. So we're all standing there. We're just watching this. Like It gets really quiet and we're just watching the town be taken apart and everybody's getting really quiet, right? And this duck, I'm telling you, it was a mallard duck, comes flying into the underground thing. His wings are bent. His feathers are turned inside out. And the duck comes flying in and everybody at the same time starts cheering that the duck made it into the thing. Well, it freaks the duck out and the duck goes flying back out and the wind takes it and it's just gone in a second. We're like, oh, all, like we were all like, yes, you made it. And we scared the <laughs> oh, damn thing back out mind. into it. Yeah, it oh. was bad. It was bad. But, I mean, like, you know, like I'll see Don Hamper at a show or something going around taking pictures, and we'll start talking about, you know, that experience that you had with that person. It's because you all congregated at the same place at the same time. You have all those memories. It was just great. Yeah. Jeez. You know, uh, well, now I look forward to every year because um, – me, uh, Owen, Zach, and uh, Matt Manitola, we all, you know, we take the trip out from here. And, man, that's a great time. We we sure do yeah, have a good stuff. No, and, no, uh, it's usually filled with debates. And this year it was three hours of me yelling at him that Sasquatch does not exist. 
All right. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. For the entire yeah. state of Ohio, I was mad at Eric uh, for for that bullshit. So. I know how to push his buttons, you know. You do, but, uh, it's not fair. Yeah, but yeah, I was yeah, that's I, good you know, stuff. I'll tell a real quick story about uh, Tinley Park, as and, yeah. and this kind of uh, relates to your uh, to what you were saying, Keith. Is that um, you know the first year I went out to Tinley Park, um, I remember you know it was, it's sort of my first year of of getting into the Moralia crowd, and you know it kind of segmented into the Condro guys and the Carpet guys, and. I'll never forget it because I got to drink beers and hang out with guys like Terry, Terry Phillip, uh, you know, uh, Rico Walder. Uh, uh, there was, uh, you know, I think of all the carpet guys, um, you know, Jason and Howard and, and yeah, the heavy uh, hitters now and you yeah. know, all these guys. And, and we're just sitting around and we're just drinking beers. And I'm like, you know, I'm in, I'm starstruck with these dudes because, right. you know, these are the guys, you know what I mean? And right. here I yeah. am, and they're just hanging out with me like I'm just one of their, you know, one of the dudes, you know? And it was just like, wow, this is awesome, you know? And yeah. you can't have that experience if you don't take that trip. It Absolutely seems like not. it's, uh, you know, something that, uh, do I really want to spend the money? Do I really want to? I got to take off work. Oh man, the drive so far. All these excuses that you make, but once you're there, man, is it worth it? It's totally worth it. You know, oh yeah, so, absolutely. You can't even explain it. You just got to live through it one time, and you'll you'll understand mm-hmm. it and get it, and and hopefully you know build a uh, long lasting relationship to keep doing that show. And if Tilly, you know, from what I'm hearing from what everybody, Matt, you know. Matt comes over to my house for barbecues all the time, and he's been trying to get me to go for years. But I think I'm just going to bite the bullet and uh, and and do it this year, and then just start making it the routine, you know? Yeah, nice. definitely. So yeah, I, I guess my uh, my next, and this will sort of segue into some uh, some blood python and short tail python talk. Um, but you know, with work, I, I can't imagine me personally ever not working with carpet pythons. And I think yeah. like, oh, you are kind of one of the one of the guys when it comes to, you know, short tail pythons. What yeah. what was it like to sort of say, you know what, I've done this, I, I'm going to move on, and you know, like what what caused you to to do that and move well, on to Bolins? I'll tell you when I when I started with with uh, bloods and, and, and short tails. It, it, it was so long ago, you know, I can remember that on the, on the price list, they used to say um, for the Borneos, they'd be like the newly rediscovered species. That's how they were <laughs> playing them off. You know, the newly rediscovered species. And, and I, the only people working seriously with them at the time were myself, Tracy and Tim Mead. And, you know, we were the three that really, you know, got rid of everything else um, and really started focusing. I mean, at one point, the Barkers had, I think they even had um, on a pellet, if I'm saying that right, they had like every species of python in their collection. And, And that's what people did back then. Everybody had a lot of everything. They didn't concentrate on things. But then Tracy started concentrating on on blood pythons and short tails and, and boas and ball pythons, you know, she morphed into that. 
Um, but she had a collection, you know, that was world-renowned as far as every python species in captivity pretty much um, or in existence they had in their collection. Um, to me, you know, focused solely on the short-tailed pythons, and, and that's when I was into it. I didn't know Tim off the bat. I knew Tracy. And, you know, I did those animals for a long, long time, and, and I'll still always, till the day I'm in the ground, I'm going to think of myself as a blood guy even though I don't have any of those animals right now. But, you know, you guys know, man, when when you're in the game and, and you're breeding for morphs and you're breeding for traits and you're breeding for different things, you need a lot of animals to do that. And it's consuming. Yeah. And, and for a guy, you know, I work, I'm a project manager for a commercial construction company and I put up, you know, nursing homes and I do, um, you know, big jobs. So I'm, I'm, working anywhere from 50 to 60 hours a week. And, you know, even when I'm not at work, I'm looking at emails and I'm doing whatever. So, you know, to have a collection of up to 500 animals at one time, you know, when I was doing the blood pythons, it it, it was, like, very consuming. And and as you start getting deeper in the game and more people start coming in the game, to stay on that cutting edge, you have to keep even more animals back and breed more stuff and go this way. And and to be honest with you, it, it just it got too big for me. It just it just started getting too big, and the animals were established. There was a lot of great people working with them now. You know, Matt is a very dear friend. I consider Matt and Tim family. And, um, you know, Matt's doing a great job with the animals. And, you know, it was just a time in my life where I needed to back off. And I needed right. to take, take a step back. And, you know, I'm a grandfather now. I got a grandson, and, you know, all these things are starting to happen. And I'm like, you know, man, you, I want to be able to take my kids, you know, my grandson fishing and still go fishing with my daughters and, you know, do the things that the animals were taking a lot of the time away. And it, it was starting to become a burden. Um, right. And to me, it became a point where I had to make a choice. I either had to get rid of them or stay in the game. I couldn't just, it, it's a weird thing with me, but I couldn't just even keep one animal it's almost like an addiction where you just had to get rid of them all or stay in the game. You know what I mean? And I, I had been feeling for the last couple of years, like, you know, man, go back to the basics. Go back to what you love. Don't worry about what the animal looks like. Go for something. You've always wanted to work with and pythons. You always wanted to track, try to crack the code for yourself. And, you know, that's a lot of things that a lot of guys want to do, I know. But it was something that I always thought in my, if you want to call it, semi-retirement of the industry, um, was something right. that I just really wanted to do. So now I have, you know, I have some Amazon tree boas. I have some metal tree boas. I have a couple carpets. I have some woman. And my focus on the bull and I, I have Malukins. Um, but the bull and I are my focus, and that's what I want to work on, and that's what, you know, I want to do. So I just took a step back. I thinned down substantially where it's enjoyable. I, I can't wait to get home to go in a snake room again because, it's not work. I can get in and out of there within a half hour or an hour now versus, you know, every minute of every waking hour I was taking care of the animals, which I loved for a lot of years, but it just became a point in my life where I had to back off, you know, and yeah, pass sure. the torch on to people that that were doing a great job with the animals, you know? Right. Yeah. I can totally relate to that. You know, me and Owen were talking last week. It's, uh, you know, carpet pythons are kind of my – <clears throat> my thing, you know, it's, 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 I can't explain it, but 
you know, you can relate, as you just said, you know, blood pythons are kind of, you know, bloods and short tails are your thing. And, you know, till you'll die, uh, you'll, you'll always be a blood guy. So I'm always going to consider myself a carpet guy. And I go in and out of these different species. And the only other one that has come close to sort of, you know, uh, capturing my, uh, fancy, so to speak, that I haven't moved from is the bloods and short tails, mainly because I kind of like, have this fascination with Burmese pythons, but I can't right. stand the size of them. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> well, I, well, I always said, I always said to people that were asking me, you know, new to the species, I, I always told them, you know, cause I, they would say that. And I said, it's a lot of python. It's a lot of snake and a little snake. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you don't get the great length and all that, but you, you get a substantial snake in, in a small package and, and, that was the attraction to me. I, I live in Jersey, and you cannot have hots. I mean, I'd have a better chance of getting a carry permit for a pistol and get a hot than a Masanimal mm-hmm. in New Jersey. So, you know, Gaboon Vipers have always been totally up on my list. And it seems like a lot of people that like Gaboons like blood pythons, too. It's just that, you know, real short, stout, strong, beefy snake, um, you know, that I always loved. And the shape of the head was just classic to me. And, you know, right. I, it's just something I always wanted to to work with as a kid getting up. And when I first got my first ones, it was just insane. And I knew I was hooked. And like I say, you know, the thing going back to the shows is you build relationships. That's how I met Matt. And that's how I met a lot of really good people. Um, Juan, you know, from the city of Dexler, he, yep. he would come to shows and, and, you know, he would come to a show and, Keith, what do you need me to do? You know, he'd help me set up. He'd help me sex snakes. He'd help me talk to the people. I built a lot of great friendships because of blood pythons. And to this day, I haven't, you know, worked with them for three years. But those people still consider me one of them. And that's because of shows and getting to meet these people face-to-face. And like I said, I'll always be a blood guy. I talk blood still day-to-day. People still contact me. And I try to give them advice and helpful hints and things I look for for breeding. I'll always be a blood guy, man. It's just it's just who I was for a lot of years. I can't get away from it, and I'm glad I, I can. I love still being in that community. But it was just it was just time for me to go, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I was going to say that I can relate to the space issue and whatnot, you know, and I was telling Owen, I, I have a pair of Maclots, which I love, but I know that Owen's like a Maclot Python freak, so I you know, am a this crazy person. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. going back and forth on whether or not you know, like, do I keep these? Do I not? Do I, you know, I mean, you know, I'm going to have to have this space for carpet pythons and da 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 da. So it, you know, it's ah uh, well, I'm just going to give them to Owen because at least then I know where they're at. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Right. If I ever am fancied again to want to work with them, but you know, it's just like. I don't know. The I kind of like the idea of uh, of the focus, you know. And it's like for me, trying to figure out like really what makes that animal tick is kind of, you know yeah. what I mean. It it can't. It doesn't really matter about the the paint job, so to speak. Like I can still have a cool morph and still really want to try to figure out, you know, what really makes this thing want to breed or you know what is what is oh, the, the right cycle and all that kind of stuff you know so right so cool. yeah, absolutely and and i'll tell you like and you're probably to, i'm sure you are to that point with your carpets but you know with the blood pythons like like i say in my heyday i had up to 500 animals 
And when you would go in that room, like I never worried about working with any of those animals because you get so in tune to that animal. It's almost like you know what that animal is going to do before it does it. And, yeah. and that's where I want to be with bowling pythons. You know, that, I, that that's what I'm striving for now, that challenge that I have again, and I'm trying to get to that point and figure them all out. And it'll take some years, but I'll get there, you know, and, you know, yeah. I've done it before with other species. And, and, you know, like I had emeralds back in the day, and I kept emeralds for a while. And, and you can go back to species. There's nothing wrong with going back to macrolid cedar down the road. You know what I mean? Or, or, sure. As long as you're breathing, man, I, I'm sure you're like I am. I'll, I'll have some form of uh, reptile to the day I die. So, you know, you can go back to animals, too. There's no reason that when you get them, you can't go back, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So, all right, all you, Owen. <laughs> Very cool. So, um, on my thing closed. Damn it. Um, <laughs> so we're on blood talk now, right? You already just covered all the blood stuff. <laughs> I, I yeah, we kind of talked about it. Well, you know what? I, yeah, one thing I would like to talk about with the bloods is the yeah. aggression. Because people yeah, say they're no. na- like aggressive and nasty, but it's really not the yeah. case. They're high-strung animals and they're nervous animals. Yes. But once, like I was saying, if you know your animals and you know that species really well, most of the time that animal is really just a fear biter like a dog. And it's people that are insecure about dealing with this snake and they're they're worried about going in there that the animal often gives the tone of the day, so to speak. And, And you can set a blood off and you can shut them down very easily when you're used to working with that animal. I've had blood pythons that I would hand to anybody, and they could kiss them on the nose. I mean, they would, obviously you don't trust every animal 100%. It's an animal. But, I mean, no. there was definitely animals that I trusted 100%. And then there's other animals that you know what the cues are. If you touch the tail, it sets them off. They get freaked out by getting their tail touched, and they start mm-hmm. getting nervous. And if you do the right moves and you handle the animal, Steve Irwin was a master. Come on, we all know it. that guy could calm any aggressive snake down. And it's true with blood pythons. It's all in your per- persona with the animal and how you deal with that animal. Um, if you interact with it daily and all the time and keep to a certain routine, you'll, you'll have no problems with the animal whatsoever. And, and I never thought of them as a nasty or aggressive snake. I just thought of them as a high-strung, nervous animal. Um, that you deal with accordingly. And to be honest with you, I like an animal that commands respect. I like an animal that you don't take out and, you know, throw up on the counter and, you know, you're in control of the moment. I like that animal to be in control of the moment. And I'm in its presence and I'm going to do what it needs to keep it calm and safe and happy. I like the animal governing that, you know. I kind of really respected that about blood pythons. And like I say, man, I, I work with them all the time and I can't tell you... Like, it was very rare that I got bit. You know what I mean? It was very rare that I Mm -hmm. got an animal off. And it was usually something very stupid that I did. But I had plenty of animals that I could take and, you know, bring with me to the cleaning sink to wash bowls and have it on my shoulder or have it in my hand while I'm doing the work. And the animal's fine and calm and, you know, what a lot of keepers want in a blood python. And then you have the animals that are very high strung. They literally, you know, you took them out, you checked them out, you put them in a cleaning box while you clean your cage. You took them out of that, you put them back in, you didn't mess with them for too long. Your your time with that animal was pleasant, and for both of you, you didn't have any bad things. But if you kept that animal out, you started building it with things that it wasn't familiar with, even as simple as a TV or a light going on or the way you're moving, you know, when you set that animal off and make it nervous, you know, 
then you got to right. watch what you're doing with it. But they're, they're not a, right. aggressive or nasty snakes. They're just a little high strung. And not all of them. I mean, that's more of what their general personality is. It's not of nastiness. It's really not. And if you approach them that way, you'll have a very pleasant experience with the animal. What There's do you think is an the... animal that you know that you can't restrain? If you're one of these guys that mm. thinks you need to restrain the animal, blood pythons right. are not for you because you can take the tamest no. animal in the world and you try to grab it around the neck and that snake will literally twist its own head off. You can't, you just forget about restraining blood pythons. You do not restrain a blood python. And, right. um, you know, people that have that concept, well, I'm just going to go in there and manhandle that thing and get out of the cage and stuff. They'll, they'll never have a pleasant experience with that snake. You know, they're just right. not mm-hmm. held that way and dealt with that way. Yeah, I. Uh, what would you say that is like one of the things that people uh, are, uh, are the most misunderstood thing about bloods and short tails? Is that is the aggression part of it, or definitely the aggression know? part of it, and also thinking that they have to. This is going to sound contradictory to what I said earlier, but when I was speaking earlier about keeping them hydrated and wet, that was babies until their first shed. A lot of people think mm-hmm. they've got to keep them. Like, you know, like saturated, dripping cage with uh, an unbelievable amount of humidity. And all that does is promote things that you don't want growing in that cage to grow, you know. Um, they definitely are an animal that can withstand the wet conditions probably better than most pythons, without a doubt. But it's right. not really essential to their need. I, and, and people definitely do also keep them too warm which definitely is is a huge factor in making the animal aggressive because you just tightened every sense in that animal. So if you have an animal that's high-strung and you're keeping it too warm, you just magnified any of its bad traits in that animal by keeping it too hot. Um, you know, my, my room was 78 to 80 degrees ambient with no hot spots, and that's how I kept them um, all the time. And, you know, a lot of, I see people keeping them up to 85 degrees. You just uh-huh. have a very high-strung blood python at that temperature. And it definitely does make them more aggressive, you know, when they're at those temperatures. Sure. Now, did you offer uh, a hot spot once the female was grab it? No, never. No, no hot spot ever. ever. Wow. Mm. Never. Never any hot that's spots. That's interesting. Any attempts. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I yeah. keep mine. And, uh, huh, awesome. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. I'm, big, I think, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, user of fans in my room, too. You know, I have fans on the floor that blow up and just, pretty even temperatures throughout the room. Um, But I'm sure that the front of cages are a little bit warmer than the back of the cage. But I didn't purposely, for blood pythons, uh, provide a temperature gradient at all. I I kept my room 78 to 80 degrees, and that was it. Do you have a – did you have a a species that you preferred, you know, bloods, Borneos, or the uh, Sumatrans? I, I love them all. I really did. I truly love them all. I had them all, and I bred them all. But the thing I like about Borneos is is you, they're just the genetics are just so whack, and it made it so interesting breeding for for different traits uh, that I saw in animals. And, and you know, I proved it with many different you know things that I developed. But it, it, it was just a great thing to have that eye. Um, Matt Minatola obviously has it. He has the eye to to know what works together and what where that animal will go. And that was always a kick for me for breeding the short tail. And I'm sure it was a big factor for Tim Mead sticking with the animal. 
um, is, is just that, you know, you could do so many things with patterns and colors on them just from line breeding. And I so much more prefer that over uh, breeding for a morph um, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, you know what you're going to get with that pretty much. You know, you combine X, Y, and Z, and the first time, sure, it might be a different thing. But with those guys, you, you really don't know. The clutches are just so variable, and it was so great, like for the Tigers, for instance, to, to see that trait and enhance it to the point and then take that animal and breed it and see that it can reproduce itself and you can intensify that look and get the lines crisper and more sporadic down lightning bolts on the side of the animal. Oh, I just love the short tails for that reason. Um, right. You know, and that's why I, I probably had a bigger collection and was more known for that because those animals just totally fascinated me with what you could do breeding for traits and, like I say, I always found that much more challenging. Wow. Very cool. Yeah, I think uh, I think Matt subscribes to that same uh, same same concept. He's you know seeing his collection. I think he he has a a special spot for Borneos uh, in his uh, in his group for sure. Um, but yeah, and Matt, Matt, I saw that, and Matt, you know, I met Matt down in Daytona. Here we are, we live an hour away from each other, but it took a Daytona to meet Matt. And he would come mm-hmm. to the table, and uh, you could tell right away that he was a guy that really, like, he didn't just look at the animal. He was, like, you know, looking at every detail on that animal. And, and when he was looking for something to buy, it, it took him a long time to make the decision. You know, I really respected that. And that's how our friendship started because um, he has that same kind of thing. And like I say, going back to the shows, I never would have known that about him if I if I didn't get to meet him at a show, you know? Absolutely. Um Cool. So where do you see, like, uh, you know, uh, what's your thoughts on, A, where the, uh, you know, the short tail uh, group is going and and where do you see it? I mean, there's morphs that people are working with and I'm sure once they, uh, you know, that aren't necessarily readily available and once they get out there, maybe they'll get more attention. There's they're sort of like carpet still where they're kind of like one of those niche uh, species. Yeah. Um, do you see that yeah. mm-hmm. staying that way, or do you see it kind of? You know what? I, I do see it. I do see it staying that way, but I definitely, uh, obviously, the base has tremendously grown. I mean, when I was doing Daytona in the early days, or still Orlando at that point, I had three tables with nothing but blood pythons. I have. It, it took a lot to get people to stop and start talking to me. You know what I mean? Um, because. You know, everybody has that persona about them. And now, you know, I, I've only been on Facebook maybe close to a year now, I guess it was. Um, uh-huh. Before that, man, I was living under a rock, you know, and I <laughs> I, I, I really didn't have uh, – I, I really didn't see how many people are in it. You know, now I'm on Facebook and I see all the blood python groups and how many new people are coming mm-hmm. into it and how many people just have one or two, you know. Um, I uh-huh. I only really knew the serious collectors. That's the people that I knew um, just from doing the shows and whatnot. And definitely there's a, a lot bigger fan base now than there was in the early days. And, and, you know, people are so much more knowledgeable about the species. And now they're successful. I mean, believe it or not, when I started with blood pythons, they were the bowling python of the day. I mean, they were coming into the country. Yeah. And if you kept them alive, you were considered a very advanced hobbyist to keep blood pythons alive, let alone breed them. Forget about it. The only captive bred babies or born babies were female, you know, from females that came in uh, full of eggs and, and 
people got them and, and dropped them to hatch the eggs. Those were your captive-born babies back in the day. They were a very hard species to, to you know, get around. Now, you know, there's a guy that has no more experience except for keeping gray, green animals, and he's being successful with them nowadays. So the fan base right. has yeah. definitely grown tremendously, you know, and uh, I see good things and bad things come along with that. But luckily the core group of people, uh, you know, that have stuck with the bloods and, are still the people that everybody looked to, you know, are teaching good things to the, those. And uh, I, I see the fan base growing are very knowledgeable, and it seems like it's going in the right directions for sure. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, they are definitely a cool species, no doubt. Uh, I, I dig them. And, you know, we have uh, we have a lot of our listeners, you know, because there's not a lot of people that, you know, it's very hard to find people to come on and talk about them, you know. And uh, yeah, I know we do get that. Lon on, right? You've had Lon in the past. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And we, he's a wealth of knowledge for sure. Yeah. We drag Matt on all the time. I mean, like if we have a free spot, we just grab yeah. him. So yeah. you know, That's awesome. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, Good teachers, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I tried the, you know, the whole blood. Thing, and I just ended up giving mine to Matt because it hated me. So, and of course, he's there. He's like, "Oh, look, Owen, I can cuddle with it, and it's so nice." I'm like, "God damn it!" Anyway, yeah, but don't so, don't let Matt fool you. Don't let Matt fool, fool you. I'm gonna let a little secret yeah. out. I have I have the tamest ivory male blood python ever. This snake was uh-huh. so good, and I didn't need him for a year. I said, "Matt, you want to use him in any of your breedings?" He said, "Sure." So I met him. He took it and he got home. He goes, damn, you should have warned me this thing is hell on wheels. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, it's tame as blood I own. He's like, Keith, I'm telling you, this thing is crazy. I'm like, Matt, there's no way. He's like, I'm telling you, Keith, this thing's crazy. I, I mean, Matt knows blood pythons. You know what I mean? So I'm not uh-huh. second-guessing him at all. So he gets done using the animal and everything. He gives it back to me. And I tell you, when it came back here, it was tame as hell again. I don't get it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I swear to God, ask Matt. He'll tell you. He said this thing was insane while he owned it. I got it back here. And I'm like, oh, man, what am I going to encounter when I get this thing out of the bag? Yeah. Get out of the bag. I put it in the cage. I leave it alone. I go in the next day to check it out, and the thing is exactly like it was when it left here. I'm like, what the hell is Matt doing to this thing? fine. <laughs> so I bust his chops about it all the time when I see him. But, yeah, I'm telling you, and I've heard that a lot. And I've got, and, and you know what, the same thing to me. I've got snakes from Tracy or something, and they tell me it's, a, you know, fine, don't worry about it, get out of the bag, the snake's fine. And the same thing, that thing was hell on wheels for me. It's It's really strange how that works. And I think they get so imprinted on yeah. my routine or Tracy's routine or Matt's routine. They just get so imprinted on that that, you know, you change that and they're nervous and they're high-strung and they're this and, and they, that. And they get and, upset. Yeah. Exactly, you know, and, and I, I really attribute it to that. They're, they're definitely uh, an animal of, uh, you know, nature and what happens every day. Cool. I got you. All right, uh Keith, we're going to close it out, but we have the questions at the end of the show that we'd like to close out with. And the first one is, is um, if you could keep any reptile uh, in the world without any limitations, be it legal or space-wise, what would it be and why? You know what? That is probably the hardest question that anybody (laughs) has ever asked me. 
It really was. I wrestled with this since you guys were telling me you were going to ask. I was like, what yeah. would it be? And I wrestled with it. And I got to tell you, the first, the thing that kept coming into my mind was Tuatara. It kept coming into mind to work with Tuatara. Cool. cool. And really? Then I, yeah. And then because obviously the challenge, man, I'm all about the challenge nowadays. You know what I mean? And, Hey, come on, you know, what could be more challenging than to do a tower? <laughs> <laughs> so that's what my first choice was. But I got to tell you, I, I started saying, you know what, but what would it be in each species? So I went and I just made a little list. And, and if it was boas, I would go back to the green Sanzinia. That would be my, my mm-hmm. dream to put back together a really nice group of the greens. And that would be my choice in boas. And um, in lizards, it would be the Moloch or the Thorny Devil from Australia. I would oh. love to work with those. Um, you know, that would definitely be a dream species of a lizard. You do love a challenge. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, for Tauruses, it would be irradiated. They're just insanely beautiful. Um, I would love to, you know, be in an area where I could have them outside in natural sunlight and just work with that species for a tortoise. Mm-hmm. That, that would be the one. For colubrids, Nothing better for me than an Eastern Indian, man. I would love to work with Eastern Indian. Oh, Back yeah. in the day, when, you know, I used to go into pet stores, and they used to sell indigos. There was $10 a yeah. foot. That's how they sold. And you could wow. buy them right oh in the pet store around here, you know. And, and, like, you know, that was the species back then. And, and my father finally bought me one. And I'll tell you something, that indigo has – for me, the hardest bite of any snake I've ever been bitten by. <laughs> it's, it's like a monitor lizard. I thought a philosopher had grabbed my hand when that thing grabbed me. <laughs> I could not believe wow. the strength of an eastern indigo. And wow. For venomous, it would be a gaboon and a rhino for sure. For venomous, that's where I would go. Um, and then I thought just turtles. And, dude, if I win this lottery, this Powerball, I'm sure we're wondering, <laughs> wondering what reptiles we would buy. But I would have a pair, you know, right? I would have a pair of the largest alligator snapping turtles I could have in an aquarium, like 10 feet by 20 feet, and just have them in there where I could watch them underwater, dude. I would love to have one of those monster alligator snappers. Yes. And uh, for crocodilian, it would be a black caiman. That would be my wish oh, list of species. If, if, if I could have anything in the world, that would probably be a group of animals I'd put together. Damn. You were probably you, the only guest that ever came with a list of every <laughs> species if you were to break it down. Yeah. yeah. He's, came, he's come a, prepared. Yeah, oh, that yeah. was the hardest question oh, yeah. I think I've ever been asked because seriously, for guys like you and me, can you really name what the one species would be? I mean, can you do no, that? No. Yeah. No. Right? Yeah, oh. I, I, that's Whew, that's that's a difficult one, you know, because there's, there's so many that, that we haven't worked with and so many that, you know, you love that you have worked with. And, it's, oh, man, I don't so know. So many that <laughs> limit by money and legality, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, and, oh, yeah. and if you asked me this question five years ago, it would have been bull and I. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you that go. Was, See, that, that was the animal. That, so. and, and we've talked about this. When you really, really want something and then you get it, you kind of I, I, people always you move to the next mountain or you you, you select your next thing that you're going to chase or sometimes right. like you're like Keith and you just make a list of everything. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> sometimes for me the All chase right. is 
is a huge part of the no, so, absolutely. You know, the, so the research. And, yeah, it's like, oh so, man, you, it's like opening up a whole new world of of reptiles that you didn't know about. Sometimes absolutely. when you get your little groups, you don't really realize that there's a you know, wow, there's there's a whole group of people that likes geckos. I I would have yeah. never known. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. It's, you you get you definitely get very uh, like pigeonholed in, in seeing what's right in front of you and not really what's all the way out there. Right. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. So next one is Keith. If you could go herping anywhere in the world without limitations of legality or money. Where would you go, and what would you be hoping to find? Well, I wrestled with that one too, <laughs> and I flip I flip flop between Australia, obviously for the diversity. I don't think there's any place right. like it. Um, but it would have to be New Guinea and um, yeah. Papua New Guinea because there's just the, the the insanity of what's there just blows my mind, and the insanity of what is there and we don't know about yet is what I would be looking for. Um, you guys probably remember, hopefully you remember the show that Steve Irwin had where he started out at sea level and he went all yes. the way up mm-hmm. through. Yes. That was like my favorite episode of everything. Show me everything that lived at the different elevations. And um, when uh, Mark O'Shea was there and he was looking for the crocodile monitor, because I had croc monitors, I love croc monitors, and when oh, he was there looking for the croc monitors, and and I believe he discovered um, the uh, what python was that that he discovered there it was a, a subspecies, but you know just the unknown of what you will find in Papua New Guinea is, is definitely what would bring me. That would be the first on my list of where I'd have to go. Yeah, you have to wonder. I'm with you. You have to wonder, like, if if there's like, okay, so I think about, you know, you think about carpet python, scrubs, chondros, all these. Is there like species over there that, you know, of pythons that a maybe we don't even know about? Is there other subspecies so. of these animals that, you know, yeah. we don't even know about? Different localities. I think, I think there could be Bigfoot over there. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, no but seriously, there, there's got to be populations of something in that in dense forest and inhabitable areas that we don't even know about yet. It's just got to be. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And, yeah, and awesome. so, you know, that would definitely be the, the first thing on my list to go there. You know, and I keep I keep thinking to myself, man, you got to just bribe Ari one day and just like yeah, have along. Fund the whole trip and say, Ari, I'll, I'll go with you. I'll pay for everything, but you got to let me tag along. But then I think of like the culture and everything else, and I'm like, man, would a six foot, you know, 250 pound red haired guy be really like outstanding over there where it's sticking <laughs> out like a sword? So maybe it's not oh, a yeah. good idea, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Ari can kind of blend, but I think I would stick out over there a little bit. <laughs> We're talking about it, but I'm pretty sure I'd die on a mountain with Ari somewhere. Like, you'd be like, Owen, go check over there. Where'd Owen go? And you just walk off a mountain and plug yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely. that's how that would go for me. So, yeah. uh, it, but still, it would be awesome to do. Yeah, no, I, I, that's still definitely one of my dreams. Like I say, I, I get the Powerball, man, and I'm like, Ari, I'm on the next trip over there with you. <laughs> no doubt. We're going in. We're going in style. Yeah, done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we were, we were talking about uh, if we won the Powerball, and the one thing I was, I was saying uh, at work, 
It's like, I don't know if I necessarily would stop working because I'd be afraid of that, you know, I'd fall into this lottery curse and, you know, be yeah. broke in, in, a, in yeah, a couple absolutely. of years. But the one absolutely. thing I told, but, I told my boss was that I'm definitely taking off a month and that everybody that's <laughs> in the, the Morelia Python radio circle will take off a right. month as well and I will pay whatever your salary <laughs> is for that month and we will go to Australia <laughs> And we will hurt the shit out of it. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? that would be that'd be living the dream right there, right? Yeah. God, I hope Eric wins. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah because Absolutely. everybody will say, "Oh, I can't take off for a month. That you can't use that excuse because I'll pay it." You know? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. But, All right. So. so the next thing is. Uh, what's the one thing we can't get off our minds? Um, I guess, Keith, you are the guest, so what is the one reptile-related thing that this week you could not get off your mind? Uh, being on this show, to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm much better putting my thoughts down on in, in writing than I am uh, conversing. Um uh, so I'm definitely nervous if I would get all the thoughts that are jumbled around in my head out concisely so people knew what I was talking about. So that definitely was the biggest thought on my mind this week when related to that. <laughs> and then after that, it was, it, was, it, was, it was my female and her follicles for sure. I'm definitely very pumped. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Luckily, we're just controlled chaos over here, so it's really easy to <laughs> throw your ideas out here. So... Uh, I guess I will go next, and what I can't get out of my head all week would definitely be the snowstorm that's going on right now and how it will affect my breeding pairs. So I was kind of hoping that this snowstorm would hit and hit hard and that all those animals that I know wait until it's a snowstorm to start breeding would start breeding, um, and we can try to get some more locks. Uh, I'm seeing some good signs out of a bunch of females, but I'd like to see some morphid signs out of more. So I guess what I couldn't get out of my head all this week was just basic breeding season stuff. Isn't it, isn't it amazing, like, what different groups of people are into? Like, a lot of the guys I work with are into snowmobiling. So they see a snowstorm, and they're thinking, wow, we get to go snowmobiling. Guys like you and me are like, yeah, yeah. our snakes are going to breed. Yeah, my snakes are going to breed, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I used to hate the winter until I started breeding snakes, and I was like, oh, yes, come on. Yeah. Here he comes. Yeah. I, I still hate the winter, and I still hate snow, partially because I'm an insurance agent, secondly, because then i got to shovel it. But it's like today, I'm like, God damn it, it's snowing, and Eric's like, snakes breeding the snow. I'm like, woohoo, it's snowing. So it's like, you know, it's... Yeah, well, our, our winter here in Jersey hasn't been super favorable to Boland's python breeding, that's for sure. I mean, on Christmas no. Day, we were 70. I actually had the air conditioning on in my house in New Jersey on Christmas Day. Yeah, yeah. I was how warm it was. <laughs> so did I. Like, this is crazy. Right. <laughs> crazy. We, uh, you know, it's weird. I, I'm reading this new carpet python book, and one of the things that I saw in there was um, – uh, this map of Australia, and in the map of Australia, it was showing the precipitation. Um, and basically, where the heaviest precipitation is coincides with the actual map of where the carpet pythons are. 
So it made me think uh. that these carbon pythons are really because I'm thinking, wow, the room is 70 degrees. You know, I don't understand. Like they should be, they should be going. Why ain't they going? You know, and right. and then I thought about it, and I'm like, these snakes are probably more in tune with the actual, you know, fronts that are coming in more so than say, you know, these cooler temperatures, or maybe it's a mix of both. You know what I mean? But without that, those fronts that are really coming through, maybe you're not going to get uh, be as successful with breeding right. them. You know, so. Right. Um, but the the one thing that I I saw I saw this post from uh, Michael uh, Cermak and he's a uh, he's a guy down in Australia and he keeps uh, green tree pythons. But I found this interesting and I never really thought about this. But he said basically there's a common belief among snake keepers that snakes can be hydrated by soaking or spraying them with water. We know that snake skin after the first shed is not water permeable. But I was curious um, if it's shed if the dead skin would allow water to pass through. So he pumped 12 milliliters of water into a piece of uh, shed skin, which was inside out, held it for a minute, and not a drop of water seeped through. So the conclusion was that snakes can only be uh, hydrated internally. I thought that was pretty interesting that uh, here we are spraying spraying the shit out of our snakes, and it really is not necessarily... Uh, yeah, you know, but I don't know whether does, that's... Does, the, does the spraying of the snakes and the subsequent evaporation of that spray add for a rapid cooling that could possibly be the stimulant, not so much, you know, the water on the snake itself? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, are you just raising the ambient humidity within the cage? Um, but, you know, I, I had Matamatas, um, and I still have Matamatas. I have an adult pair and took oh, a couple of years to get them acclimated. And I took the, the aquarium and I actually moved it over to um, John's store so he could have them on display because I needed room for the bowling eyes and whatnot. And um, what I did notice, though, before they went there, and we got eggs, by the way, and we had fertile eggs, but I failed to hatch them. But what I did oh. notice is that um, I had a spray bar in there that would spray on top of the water. And believe it or not, that was the stimulus that would get these guys into the breeding cycle. And what we came up with, me and John, is that that spattering on the surface of the water was indicative of maybe a rainy season. And it was weird. They shut down feeding. They did all these different behaviors when the spray bar was spraying on the surface of the water. And, you know, I was like, man, these guys haven't eaten in a while. And I started messing around with different things. And I took the spray bar and got it back underneath the water. So it was just a current. And they went Mm -hmm. back on feed and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think that could be a stimulus for for actually why we got as far as we did with with the the pair of turtles. But, you know, maybe it's just the effect of the dappling of water on them as you're spraying them or something like that, more than the actual... um, hydration of the animal itself you know there's a lot of factors that could come into play with that i think when breeding animals i don't know if you guys agree but i think there's probably i said this before there's probably a checklist of like you know seven different things eight whatever the number would be but you could get four Mm -hmm. of them and you're going to have success but if you don't get you know what i mean like it could be all different i mean it doesn't necessarily like if you don't do a light cycle doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to have success but, you know, if you 
you know, if your animals are keyed into that, you know, light cycle and, you know, temp cycle and, you know, then maybe you need those fronts to come through and that's that, the, you know, the, the, the cherry on the top type of thing. Absolutely. But, you know what you I mean? So it's, yeah, you cannot follow somebody else's recipe to the letter and be successful in your situation because Frederick's environment where he is is different than my environment. I can only interpret what he's doing to my conditions and adjust and alter and, and change things around and make them work for me. There's no doubt about that, you know. Um, yeah. Everybody's conditions are definitely different um, for your basis to start your work with, but you can use those variables to, to be successful without a doubt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. Cool. Very cool. Um, so, Keith, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way to do it? Yeah, anybody wants to talk reptiles or any kind of animal or whatever, <laughs> uh, I'm definitely down for that. And uh, probably the best way is uh, just my AOL email, um, and that's pythonman, figure that, pythonman1 <laughs> at AOL.com. Um, believe it or not, back, I mean, I have to have had that email forever. Um, probably, I don't even know how many years. And believe it or not, when I tried to get Python Man, I couldn't believe somebody else already had it. So I had to add the one after Python Man. <laughs> I'm like, how could somebody else have that? Come on. It was like hardly even the internet at the time. I couldn't believe somebody else had Python Man already. Wow. Yeah, so I got Python Man 1 at KOL.com. Probably a guy with big biceps or something like that. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody who has no idea what he's. Yeah. You, you know what's really sad now is like I'll go into a bank for a loan or something. I'm 56 years yeah. old, and they'll be like, "Well, what's your email?" Yeah. And I'm like, uh, I'm in one of their all the time. Crap. <laughs> and they're like, "What? Yeah. You say it a little louder." You know, you're like, no. out there in the bank. Python man uh, one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll write it down, and you can read it. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. Well, Keith, it was awesome talking to you. Uh, thanks so Definitely. much for coming on and uh, chatting with us, and you're welcome back anytime. Maybe when we get a uh, – I know me and Matt were talking about doing a, a, a blood uh, short-tail roundtable. Maybe, uh, you know, you'll be down for oh, coming in. Absolutely. That would be great. I would love it. Yeah, cool. Awesome. So thanks so much. Hey, thanks for having me, and thanks, uh, thanks for making the uh, the environment so easy to to talking. Because I'm definitely not a talker. I do better, like I said, with writing. But you guys definitely make it very comfortable for uh, anybody <laughs> to talk. So I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've been doing it for four years. You're pretty good at something. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we hope. To uh, I hope I get to meet you guys out in Tinley this year too. Yeah, that or come to Hamburg. We're gonna be there, and uh, if I can get that. Oh, are you really? When's the next show? Yeah, I've ended uh, the 27th. All right, Uh, I'll probably be there. Yeah, sweet. Well, come. Uh, I'll be right behind Matt Matola's. I mean, you're you're in Jersey. Make it out to uh, Carpet Fest with us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Carpet Fest. You can be in, even though you don't even need to have a carpet. Just come. Yeah, yeah. that (laughs) game last time. On was there. Yeah, it was a great time. So. All right, Keith. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. All right. Have, have a good, good night. night. All right, Keith. You too. Take care, man. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's quick wrap this up and uh, get going. So um, next week's show is yes 
our first yes. ever Venomous show. Yes. Oh, we, my God. <laughs> we are going to be talking with Scott Eper, um, and we're going to be talking about Australian uh, Venomous Snakes. Um, but Scott messes with, like, the dangerous, dangerous venomous snakes. It's not like, you yeah, know, uh, this is an eyelash viper. He's like, this is an inland taipan that I poke in the <laughs> face. It's like, oh, yeah. okay. So, so awesome. um, for anybody that has any questions, um, you know, hopefully um, we're able to do the show justice. I think having Scott, uh, it would be, uh, he's, he's going to be an awesome guest. You know, he was on the show before, but he actually wrote a book, uh, you know, called Australian Alapids and Colubrids. Um, so I think that uh, his experience both in the field and with working with these animals in captivity will give us a little bit of insight into the world of venomous snakes from Australia. Really? If you write a book on venomous snakes, I'm pretty sure we're going to do the show justice. He wrote a yeah. book on venomous snakes. Yeah, I just yeah. hope that we, I mean, we asked the right questions. Oh, and, no, we're, we're, you know. we're idiots, but, <laughs> but he will do the show justice. He will carry us, like most yeah. guests do. But that's yeah. here, neither here nor there. So, so this cool. is a, a little bit off-topic uh, type of thing. Um, you know, uh, it's one of those uh, off-the-beaten-path shows as far as Morelia goes. And then we'll probably uh, bring it back circle in the next couple shows with some Morelia stuff, but uh, but uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's something different. Um, this is going to be a show that I'm definitely not going to run out and buy any type of animals after. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Doing the show. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I, I'm, I am I'm not going to end the show and be like, you know, you know what I really want? A death adder. I mean, that's not going to happen this time. Yeah. So, I want a brown yeah. snake. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that uh you know we'll probably approach the 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 show from two different areas maybe we'll we'll talk about the natural history and some of the you know the type of venom and stuff like that and then uh maybe some of the uh you know if you are interested in perhaps keeping um you know these species uh then maybe talk about some uh captivity requirements uh you know that uh Jesus. that you need to really think of and who knows maybe even um you know uh what's his name will stop by and uh introduce the show um <laughs> what's his name <laughs> don't do it don't i know where you're going and i'm not helping uh, yeah. you uh, okay. no cuz i don't want i don't want any, i don't want my own my name to be attached to this but go Zach's on gonna, so. Zach's going to send me a message and say do it i know it when he's listening to I the end of the story. yeah exactly. um Zach is evil like that, but go on. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, all right, so so there we go. Um, as far as Osmoreli Python Radio, uh, if you like the podcast and you want to learn more about Morelia, check out MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Um, if you have any questions or comments about the show, future guests, uh, you can send us an email at info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. You can check out our Facebook page, Morelia Python Radio. Be sure to give us a like and be sure to share the show. Uh, if there's shows that you like, get it out there, spread the word. And uh, we are at the nominating process, I believe, for radio yep. shows here. So uh, if you like again. the show, <laughs> and uh, go over to the Reptile Report and uh, give us a mention to nominate us. 
uh, for radio show of the year. I'll put a link. I'll put a link on the pick of the week. We okay. usually always do. So yeah, yep. keep your eye peeled there. Yep. So uh, let's see where else you can always also follow us on Twitter at Murray Python, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, if you want to subscribe to the show to the podcast, you can do it on iTunes or whatever podcast app you happen to use. You know, uh, we appreciate uh, all the breeders and uh, all the people that uh, keepers and come on and and talk with us and uh, share their knowledge with us. So, um, you know, do us a favor and do them a favor and get those shows out there and spread the word. Um, Let's see what else. As far as myself, uh, E.B. Morelia, uh, you can check out my website, ebmorelia.com, my Facebook page, E.B. Morelia. I'm on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram. Uh, if you have a question for me personally, uh, you can send it to eric at ebmorelia.com or send me a message on Facebook. That's fine, too. Uh, either way, we'll work. Um, obviously, with us, there's no shipping at the moment. Um, however, I believe I will be with Owen at the uh, Hamburg show in February. Oh, my God. <laughs> he, he comes down from on high to... Mingle with commoners. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I will be able to take off work uh, for once and uh, be able to uh, hopefully hang out and shoot the shit. And I'll probably bring some snacks yeah. and like that too. But uh, good because I don't have any. So you should bring oh, as many as you can to fill my displays. That's if I have non-broken displays before. <laughs> well, no fear, oh, Owen. Still, I have about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> So uh, I have uh, – I'll also throw this out there real quick before you give your shout-outs. Is, um, I also have a few calendars left. Uh, most of the people that um, have ordered them uh, should have gotten them by now. I see a lot of people, especially people overseas, that are they're starting to trickle slowly but surely. Um, sorry about the delay. This year for sure we'll be starting them in probably the end of August. That way they're done. And put the rest. Yep. Um, we will also. I had people contacting me about Carpet Fest, so we're gonna have to pick a date soon and uh, figure no, that crap. all out. <laughs> it's literally. You have. It's little, You have to move first. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's literally five months away. I don't know, Owen. It's looking like it might be at your spot again. <laughs> no, not again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, we'll have to. Uh, we have to get together anyway because I got stuff for you and whatnot before yeah, that. I don't so, a calendar. Uh, people overseas are getting calendars. I can't get one. I'm part yeah. of the damn show. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, yeah, so look out for that. Um, I know a couple people have contacted me. Uh, they're wondering about that, I guess, because they have to take off of work and such. So, your plan. Yeah, I got you. Yep. That's all I got. Yep. So, if you want a calendar, just reach out and. You know, I tried to. Uh, there's only a few left, so uh, if you want one, 20 bucks shipped. Uh, just uh, reach out to me, and we'll get it to you. That's all I got. Cool. All right. Uh, for me, you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. Uh, it's got the whole thing that's going on at Rogue. Um, the for sale page is up to date uh, that I'm aware of. I have to go look. Um, like Eric, we're not doing any shipping. So if you're going to be at a show in the East Coast that I regularly either attend or vend, you can pick up a baby at those free of charge. Uh, you can also go to Rogue Reptiles on Facebook.com. 
give us a like, as well as you can peruse everything that's going on over there. A full list of all the animals and pairs that we're breeding are on both the website and the Facebook page. If you want to get on any of the lists for any of those babies, just let me know. We'll put you on the list, and as babies become available, we will offer them to first come, first serve. Uh, I will be at the uh, vending. The next show we're vending is the Hamburg Reptile Show in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, and that is the 27th of February. Uh, if you are interested in any of the babies, want to make sure that I bring them, let us know. I think I, I now that Eric's coming, I know he'll be there, and I'll probably be splitting some animals with him. Uh, I think we're going to split some with a few other people. Uh, we do not have that many babies left, so if you're waiting for a caramel jag, uh, don't wait. I only have two more left, and that's it. So jump now. Um, and that's all I got here for me, and that's all we got for you guys tonight. So what I will say is thank you all for listening, and we will catch you all next week for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night. Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotics. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Markland and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit thereptilereport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad that also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buying and selling? Use shipyourreptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related.